It's one of the things that attracted me in Prisoners is I thought it was a nice exploration of something that uh, is a, one of the dark side of North America today. It's this idea that uh, when you are emotionally involved as an individual or a nation, are you the, uh, the, uh, is it a good idea to make justice? I mean, it's like the, I think that uh, in such a, uh, uh, in such an event or such a moment, you need a third party. You cannot see clearly. You can't see clearly. You cannot make justice yourself. I think it's not possible. It's, it's, I think that the movie is saying pretty strong thing about United States and Canada right now, and I, that's why I think it's a, a very important piece. I think cinema is a way to explore those things. It's a, it's a very powerful tool, and it's just raised questions. The movie, the screenplay. Let's say the screenplay was raising those questions, and I just tried to, to protect them as much as I could. Hello, welcome to the extra credits for a special 10 year anniversary episode on one of the best psychological thrillers <laughs> of its era. Let's go. We're talking about Denis Villeneuve's Prisoners. I'm Trey. <laughs> and I'm Kelsey. I'm so excited. <laughs> I'm I was pumped. like trying to think of a, a quote to like get from the movie just to match your energy, yeah. but I can really only think of the like the yelling in the car, you know? Like, I'll take it. Not you. Hey, hey. Not you. Hey. Me. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god today's gonna be so much fun uh today is a good day to talk prisoners because today is denis villeneuve's 56th birthday happy birthday denis Wait, like actually today? today like literally today the oh, recording wow. day today is is today what is it well we October might release 3rd. it not on this day but the day that we are recording it's yes. his day of birth it is wow. his day of birth 56 a young 56 it feels right to support his work today even though Prisoners is quite literally the most anti-birthday movie ever, except real, for me. Real quick, what do you think he does on his birthday? He, I honestly, He's, I mean, he has talked a lot about like drinking, discussing philosophy with yeah, actors. So. I have some fun stories. Remind <laughs> me about that because I don't think I came ready today to talk about Jake Gyllenhaal and Denis Villeneuve like getting drunk together and talking like <laughs> American paranoia. But I'm, <laughs> we can definitely talk about that. Something tells me he's just like having a nice night with his family okay that's and they're nice. doing well for themselves Does and he have a, a family he yeah kids? he's got a family oh, yeah i don't know anything about his life bunch of kids uh speaking of birthdays today's episode is kind of a birthday episode for me actually because okay. last year <laughs> i had chazelle's whiplash on my birthday month for my birthday pod and this year we didn't do one because my birthday was weeks ago and we've been so busy the past few months getting the patreon ready but I, picked, I guess you're right. Yeah. I did pick prisoners, sort That's of. True. I've been trying to coerce Kelsey into like letting me do this episode. So we have a 10-year anniversary today for prisoners. We also have Denis Villeneuve's birthday. We also have it being like my birthday podcast, sort of. Um, so I'm I'm in a good mood, but I I, I should <laughs> I should acknowledge something. I want to acknowledge all of the like non-prisoner fans out there. I understand. Uh, that this movie has turned into a film bro movie of sorts. Do you find it strange that Prisoners has like turned into an Inception level movie where if it's in like someone's top four favorites on Letterboxd, there's something to be worried about? Yeah, I mean, I don't know something to be worried about. Like, obviously, it's fine if you have Prisoners or Inception in your top four, mm -hmm. but I feel like you're going to have to kind of explain yourself or have a lot of assumptions about your like um, film bro habits possibly that, that is fair. Yeah. <laughs> like, because I have like we love prisoners 
We also love Inception. You can go listen to us talk a lot about Christopher Nolan. And I think we literally titled our episode, The Christopher Nolan Problem. We've gone through a whole Um, Nolan journey. (laughs) We've gone through a whole journey, even though, you know, we love Nolan films. But we love Prisoners. Obviously, that's why we're doing it today. And I'm excited to talk about why I love it and why I feel like I am interested that it's gotten this like weird bad rap in terms of like a people are overthinking it maybe like I don't really know I I don't yeah see the same level of like the you know film bro culture stamp um it, on prisoners as I do Christopher Nolan like not that level but there is yeah a, something uh, about it that is fascinating where I, I do associate it with that. So I always have to preface, you know what I mean? I think it's the like, this is why I like prisoners. Yeah. I, I feel like I do too. I'm like scared to, when I do talk to movie people, I am scared to mention, Oh yeah. Have you seen prisoners? Because something happened on TikTok, like film bro oh, culture. You know, maybe that's why over the past three or four yeah. years, we're like inglorious bastards, inception prisoners, uh, you I'll know, die something for Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, something from Tarantino. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, that is a little bit. There is something to be nervous about. Okay, meeting that person, but I don't think anything's wrong with those movies. It's just it's basically just telling audiences you've seen a very specific identity in movies, and that's the identity you want to see in movies. Okay, and so I feel like that's the biggest problem with Prisoners that is that it speaks to men who are also like very loud in capital A acting and uh capital m masculine (laughs) and so like that is like what this movie is playing with these kind of tropes i mean this film is full of like familiar cliches from famous thrillers that we're going to get into today but the reason it's so good is because the subtext the symbolism the motifs throughout it it's all it gives you so much to pick apart for years to come which is why i think it's been a long-lasting film and i think ever since it dropped on netflix recently which it is streaming i recommend everybody go Mm -hmm. revisit the movie you know right now or after this pod's over um, I think since that's happened, I've seen the conversation around it, you know, go up and yeah. people are talking about it a lot more. And I also think the 10 year anniversary has helped it because a lot of sites have come out with like essays on revisiting the film. Sure. And I have noticed in those essays that people are still talking about it, even though they're like paying homage to it as like an anniversary, talking about it as like a pretty good B movie. Yeah. And like not a bad <laughs> Villeneuve flick. And I'm like, wait a second. Am I the only Villeneuve fan who thinks prisoners is his best movie? Wow. Okay. Well, I don't know about that. Like, I think we definitely disagree on that. Yeah, I think that's a hot take. Okay. Um, I don't disagree with you, though, that I think it is definitely in my top tier of Denis movies. Okay. But I think that... Well, I don't want to... Should I talk about my favorite when we we get into his Well, I'm going to get into his his lesser seen movies in a little bit, and maybe we can do it then. Because I thought it would be fun to go through his filmography before we like touch on the protein of Prisoners and get into all the themes and symbolism. I do want to ask you, though, when do you think you first saw this movie? Because it did come out in 2013, but we had just started dating then, and I doubt I was like sit down and watch prisoners because like it's a <laughs> it's a pretty frightening movie to be like hey yeah we just like started spending a lot of time together do you want to see this these kids get kidnapped like it's a little crazy i think so it probably took us a few years to watch this one i think i definitely remember you calling me yeah and telling me about your theater experience it was a great theater experience with, with prisoners because yeah. you like went to see two movies back to back right yeah that yeah night so I, okay. So 10 years ago, like last week, I was trying to look back at like the dates and I was like, I think I literally like last week, 10 years ago, I saw prisoners on like opening night in Huntington, West Virginia at a local movie theater outside of my college with some friends. I only went to this college for a year, 
but uh, I was there in West Virginia for a year, which is interesting because a lot of the movie has this like West Virginia, Pennsylvania aesthetic that was mm-hmm. like really, really similar. Um, but yeah, we double featured it that night. We saw the film You're Next, which was oh. just an incredible low what a budget great double feature horror movie. Yeah, yeah. A frightening four hours with both of those movies together. I think that movie Your Next was made for like just under a million dollars and actually came out in 2011, but didn't get distribution rights until 2013. And it just blew me and my buddies away. It was like one of those one house, one night, one slasher horror movies. Yeah, it's, it reminds me a lot of Ready or Not, which is one of my favorite yes, horrors. Totally. We should have added Ready or Not to the Patreon horror movie list. Yeah, but remember like... We well, can do it one year. People view it, I guess, like not as a horror, I think. What? I feel like it's a cat and mouse thriller horror. I feel, I like, feel that it's a horror, but I don't know. Well, it's our podcast. We can, <laughs> <laughs> we can choose when to do it. Uh, I would love to. But um, yes, your next incredible movie. I would love to rewatch that one, actually. But we finished that movie and I only went to go see this horror movie. I didn't even think it was going to be good, but I only went so I could go see Prisoners. So my my goal was to lure my friends into go see Prisoners <laughs> with me. And I had uh, I just, you know, it was lucky that your next was great. But I had walked into like the prisoner's theater, sat in the seats. My buddies were like, what is this movie about? And I was like, don't worry about it. Because like, I didn't really know anything. I just saw the trailer and it was like watching the trailer. I have Gen X parents, like young parents. And I, for some reason, just thought of them because they showed me so many like Gen X movies. And so that's why, you know, listeners, that's a little bit of context to why I'm such a Fincher head, because I grew up with his aesthetic in my household like all the time and on TVs. And so when I saw the trailer for Prisoners, I thought I was being transported into the 90s or something because of the dreary (laughs) atmosphere and just kind of like pretentious yet like scary vibe uh, that I just was so familiar with as a child. (laughs) Um, So it's like a very self-serious movie. (laughs) Comfort movies, Uh, seven. Yes, well, it honestly is. But it is Prisoners was like a very self-serious trailer. And when I was watching it, it was like a very self-serious movie but like that's all i kind of wanted from it i wanted to be consumed in its thrilling environment and i think that i don't know that's something i i, I just like about movies when yeah. they kind of they force you to like uh uh to kind of be involved in in the story in that way and so it honestly when i walked to the theater i knew I, that doesn't surprise me that i called you because i knew this was one of my favorite movies i'd ever seen because i think i uh i told my buddies my friends i was like hey Silence of the Lambs, seven. Have you seen them? They said no. And I'm like, well, this is in that tier. We just watched like one of the best psychological thrillers of all time. So yeah, I had an incredible theater experience. And just the sound of the movies is so good. The yells are so real off our TV. Yeah, the yells are great. But the booms in the theaters were wild. And like that scene with Paul Dano whispering where you could see his eye in the eye hole, not Mm -hmm. to step on the the movie later mm-hmm. on but when he's whispering to dover hugh jackman in the theater you don't know what he's saying because the sound mix is so great but at home you have captions yeah and everything's a little bit more clear in the sound edit and so like in the theater it was just a real cool experience so yeah. if this ever comes back to theaters i recommend people go see it yeah no i think especially with denis that's something that i was going to talk about in his filmography that Regardless if I like love the movie or not, uh, the score and the sound mixing really impacts me like Mm -hmm. enemy, for example, we'll talk a little bit about that. If listeners didn't see my scathing letterbox review, big fan of enemy, (laughs) but, um, regardless, like it really was like getting under my skin, just the, the sound of the movie. Mm -hmm. And that's something that he does really well. Obviously his team does really well, but 
I do want to go back to the theater experience really quick because I think uh, of course that would be great. And especially like that gunshot at the very beginning of the movie yes. is so jarring. Every time I watch it, I forget that it happens. Um, and it's just really intense to yeah. start the movie, especially with that prayer Yeah, that Hugh Jackman is reciting as h- him and his son are hunting and they, they shoot the deer, which mm-hmm. we'll talk a little bit symbolically, symbolically about later. Yeah. But for the theater experience, because I don't really remember when I first saw this, it must have been with you. Um, it had to be. We rented it. Or... Yeah. Some, yeah. But I remember loving it when I first saw it. Um, and I don't know, though, that I would put it in the tier of Silence of the Lambs personally, because I that feels like more of an epic. You're, you're in good company, though. I think I'm in the minority of being like, <laughs> hey, this deserves to be in the conversation with Memories of Murder, with Seven, with Silence yeah. of the Lambs. I just, I feel that way. I think this movie and making money allows American audiences like, or allows studios to feel comfortable, like funding or distributing movies in the United States, like a parasite in the future. Yeah. Or that are like looking at American institutions through a a thriller. Lofty ideas. Yeah. Um, the, the thing though, that I was going to say, I remember you calling me not because, um, you thought it was like one of the best movies, even though I remember you saying you liked it. It was because, um, one of your friends that you went to see it with Marquez, right? He like stood up at the end yeah. and he was like, Trey called this. <laughs> he was like, my boy called this. <laughs> Cause I'm really bad in mysteries where I'll be like, like I'll see a clue and I'll whisper over to you. Like, Hey, did you see that? That was like a medallion. It had a little maze on it. <laughs> and then later in the movie, like when, uh, detective Loki, Jake Gyllenhaal, uh, I can't believe I just said Detective Loki like seriously. It's such a <laughs> hilarious name. Loki, played by Jake Gyllenhaal, uh, sees the clue, this like medallion again yeah. on the photo. And then he like connects it to the the mystery that's going on in this film. And we'll talk about that later. And then uh, that's when my, my also everyone spoilers, please. Like, oh, yeah, I guess but I, I feel like if they clicked it, it's 2013. Like, I don't think we've really spoiled it. There's a lot. There, yeah, there's a lot of obvious that's ways true. to spoil this movie. We've not said those things. We have so, not. Yeah. If so you have anyway, not seen spoilers film, to come. If you haven't seen it, though, and you clicked it, it's a 2013 movie. It's a little on you, you know? Yeah. But. <laughs> well, also just go watch it. It's yeah. great. I mean, I'm over rating it for sure 100 percent. yeah uh, trust my opinion more a little I, bit that i agree I, trust Kelsey. i deeply enjoy it and i think that it is fascinating for reasons that are not normally talked about and it's often passed off as a b movie and i'm excited to talk about so, why i don't think it is necessarily a b yeah. movie although i understand what people are saying so i've actually gone on like a weird journey over the past decade where i from 2013 to 2016, 2017, I thought Prisoners was like one of the smartest movies made at that time. And then I was, you know, I was in my history major, poli sci major. I'm questioning the world around me. This movie is like not explicitly saying the word institution, but it's about them. And I was like, so it's smart. And, it, you know, the movie is a little bit of like intro poli sci, intro philosophy, uh, intro contemporary American history debate class about like post 9-11 anxiety. But... I also went through a period from like, you know, getting my job and like actually hanging out with people in bars and talking movies <laughs> to uh, the point I realized, oh, is this movie kind of stupid? Like, am I embarrassed for liking this to where I've come all the way around back <laughs> where I'm like, they don't make movies like this in America anymore. In the United States, they don't make films like this anymore. This movie is really actually complicated in what it's asking the audience to think about, like about being about a collective abusive or traumatic past about being a post 9/11 anxiety about uh, a, a false American identity the consequences of institutional failures like hegemonic supremacy coming from North American countries like Canada and the United States because 
Denis is a Canadian director. Like there is so much going on in here that we get to talk about. That's, you know, pretentious. Yes. Lofty. <laughs> yeah. But I think effective because, you know, Villeneuve, maybe it starts with Villeneuve. Villeneuve has become so famous today because of Dune and because of Blade Runner. And he's become like this new Ridley Scott, Christopher Nolan figure that I think people are now revisiting his movies and trying to see when can we pinpoint the through line of his like subversive work. And I think the subversion of his text really start with prisoners. Like he's made other great films before this and we will get into those, but he starts getting like really obsessed with exploring the consequences of believing in institutions and how that belief in institutions rivals someone's belief in a higher power, mm. which is like what Dover's character represents, what Loki represents. And then like on top of that, asking the more basic, but like audience pulling human question of like, how far will you go to save your loved one from contradictory institutions, which is my like least favorite part of the movie, but still a very like commercially effective idea. Yeah. There is a, an exploration of, of dogma in this that yeah. we can get into today. I, I think before we talk about themes, uh, you made a point that's interesting to me because when you said like they don't make movies like this anymore. Um, I hate that phrase, by the way. I can't yeah. believe I said that. Yeah. <laughs> they do. Just nobody goes and goes to see them right. or, or studios aren't funding those or, scripts or stories. Or they are actually like truly B. Like, oh, yeah, that's so, true. Or on streaming services. Sure. Um, but I think that, you know, from the shift of like 2013, we see a lot of these like crime uh, thriller uh, kind of stories mm -hmm. being, uh, I guess, transitioning to like a prestige television. Oh, you're right. right? Like totally. Um, maybe before we start, it would be fun to talk about what also, it, you know, if people really do like prisoners or you like the true crime or thriller genre, like mm -hmm. what, what shows people might want to check out that oh, are wow. connected to this? Uh, AMC's The Killing yeah. is, I mean, that's the first one that came to mind when you said prestige television. Definitely a, the, a very similar vibe. The the tone that you were talking about with um, yeah. like David Fincher movies. Oh, right? yeah. Um, Broadchurch is it's also It's always great. raining. It's, it's a metaphor. Raining. It's always raining. Uh, Broadchurch also raining a lot, but great <laughs> show. Some of the best acting ever. Happy ever Valley. Ever television is in that show. Happy Valley's fantastic. Uh, we haven't seen the new season yet. Really want to shout out our English listeners who have access to that. Yeah. I also think, I mean, true detective, obviously most people would think of, which has its season four or new season coming out with Jodie Foster. Um, yeah. Sounds very Lamb, soon, of like it. January, yeah. right? Uh, I think sooner than that. Is oh, it January? Really? Okay. I thought it was January. No, no, you're, you're, you're probably um, right. I, I love true detective season one. Yeah. I mean, that seems to be Maybe like kind of do a, that on an Patreon because I stance. love, yeah. Love season a one. Patreon TV show. God, we're so busy the next few months. <laughs> well, like, well, we got Fincher like, coming up. We got Ridley Scott, Michael Mann. There's a lot. That's true. There's a lot to cover. Men. Scorsese this men. month. Men. 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 <laughs> so many men. We will not take ads on this podcast. We are fully independent, but we will support toxic masculinity. <laughs> you know, it's just because we're trying to get found right now that we like are doing every single new release. You know what I mean? Cause yeah. we want to grow um, our yeah. audience and just talk about like what is currently going on because then it's also interesting to look at the films that influence these, you know, mega filmmakers with big budgets, sure. whatever. Um, okay. Yeah. Mayor of Easttown. That a was a mayor, recent wait, show. I said mayor, mayor of Easttown. <laughs> I mean, there is actually a show called something of Easttown. That's not mayor of Easttown. Um, wait, is it, is there another show called mayor of Easttown? I think so. I, and we're we're talking about the so. we're talking about the the TV show starring 
uh, Kate Winslet. Thank you, Kate Winslet. And also a standout performance from our guy. Oh my God, Evan Peters. Yes, Evan Peters. Yeah, incredible. Yeah, we that bar any, scene. We won't. Yeah, that's bar all. Scene's we'll great. just say a bar scene. Yeah. Um, and then also I Top wanted to shout television. out just a few more. Um, Mindhunter is great. I think Fincher. Under the Banner of Heaven. Uh, with Andrew Garfield is like what I think of. It was on Hulu, I think. Yeah, uh, last year. It was an FX series. In common with Prisoners. Wow. Okay, because of the religious yeah. theme? Okay, yeah. interesting. Yeah, that, the, the killing The also, crisis but... of faith and morals. Yeah, yeah. it's like an interesting... Um, yeah, and yeah. I, I didn't think about that. I guess Andrew Garfield... And we Garfield, haven't seen Top of the Lake. I've seen Top of the Lake. Oh, I have not. Yes, that's Elizabeth... Moss, mm -hmm. I believe. Yeah, I love that show. I saw the first season. Very, very good. Very disturbing. Uh, wow, those were a lot of... <laughs> we've had a long relationship with this genre, I guess, in television. That's a good call that these movies have now moved to TV. I do think like Bong Joon-ho has like, been a savior of this genre, mm -hmm. and he's done what he can to like make sure that you know American studios will still like bring movies to our theaters that are like this. Yeah. And David Fincher, obviously, like right after... You know, Prisoners comes out from Villeneuve. Fincher has Gone Girl. I don't think Gone Girl actually fits in this genre, though I do think people will probably respond to my take. That I have hot takes on Gone Girl. I have also hot takes on Gone Girl. Have we talked <laughs> well, about this? One day. Yeah. One day. One day very soon, probably. Yeah, our <laughs> hot takes will be known. Uh, yeah, do we think... I think... Is it safe to say Denis Villeneuve is like our Spielberg, James Cameron, Christopher Nolan now? Like, he's in that tier, right? I guess so. The because only thing that's interesting is like... I think Nolan might be more that because yeah, Nolan's filmography is like more widely watched where I haven't seen some of Denise movies. Okay. So I think that's because he made a lot of non-English speaking movies and we're, we're going to get into those. Uh, should we get into those now? Cause I think, yeah, yeah, I think those are the filmography. I think those are the filmmakers that I, that I feel like are spiritual cousins to Villeneuve. You got David Fincher. I do think that's right. Though. Bong Joon-ho, yeah. the Coen brothers, Ridley Scott for sure. Ridley Scott was like, I would like to adopt you. That's like the goal <laughs> with the Blade Runner movies. And I, and listeners know Ridley Scott like is one of our favorites. Like there's yeah. just something about all those dudes, <laughs> those men, uh, that speak to, I think Denise sensibilities and also like what we're interested in, in terms of like deconstructing big ideas. Well, there's also interestingly, like, cause I mean, we love Ridley Scott. Um, there is a, a really big relationship between their films, obviously with Blade Runner, yeah. but, um, you feel like Denise movies are kind of like unflinching in a way, right? He also mixes a lot of sci-fi elements with grounded stories. And a lot of their movies are feel uncomfortable. Are a kind lot of secretly about woman too. Yeah. Both Denis and, and Ridley. Yeah. Yeah. Denis less subtle, but Ridley's also like just not a subtle filmmaker at all. So they're both <laughs> kind of similar in that way. I think, uh, though I do think, um, I think Denis likes to play in the surreal world a little bit more. Yeah. And obviously, like, I know we've joked about it, but they all share that annoying masculine trait of being very impulsive creatives and, like, obsessive about hypocrisy. But I also think they all share this, like, cynical view of society, trusting institutions, and, like, what the consequences of that are. And they seem very fascinated by concentrations of power and wealth at the, like, heart of uh, broken democracies. Sure. And then they use like these worlds of prisoners or seven or blade runner to give us like dystopian versions of cities. Yeah. I think it's interesting to also put like Christopher Nolan in this category. Yeah. Like we were talking about because Christopher Nolan, kind of what we talked about as something that we don't enjoy about his movies, even though we love most of his movies, um, is that he always kind of like has this message at the end of like, 
don't trust institutions, but it's more in a like, like what you have called press the red button um, man uh, yeah. energy contrarian tendencies yeah. yeah where it's like that is all you had to say instead of this idea of like kind of exploring like denis in blade runner or prisoners or like ridley and there's something more human about their alien emotionally yeah felt well there's something more i think like asking questions instead yeah. of giving kind of a statement that you know a lot of people will kind of resonate with but not completely have like language around because it's like you know put into or, or like snuck into this like big epic around like a superhero or something. I think Denis for sure but I but we should say Ridley, David Fincher, Bong Joon-ho all those guys have very specific thoughts about consumerism, classism, dogma mm-hmm. and they're telling you their thoughts. I don't know if it's as much of a conversation but I, I do think that with Denis. Sure. Denis is trying to have a conversation but Yeah but I audience. do think like there is maybe not questions is the right word but I think there are more open-ended okay. um, observations than a Nolan movie. Nolan, for me. which is poking, poking the bears yeah. a little bit. Yeah. Uh, totally get that. Um, before we get into Denis and his filmography, I want to let people who are listening on Spotify, sorry to all of our other listeners on other platforms like Apple and so forth, but there is a Q and a in our Spotify episode uh, for this episode in our description. There's a Q and a and a poll. The poll is going to ask you, what your favorite thriller is. And I'm just doing this one purely for fun. This is not like audience engagement. <laughs> this doesn't help our <laughs> downloads at all. I'm just curious. I put down Silence of the Lambs, Seven, Zodiac, Parasite, Memories of Murder, and hopefully if they let me, No Country for Old Men. So pick one of those movies mm. as your favorite thriller. You might be able to pick multiple. So double I don't check even know what I would choose right now. I don't know either. I just think it's fun to make you people force them it. to choose because I'm evil. <laughs> and also for people who are not on Spotify, um, you can also you know feel free to like DM us on Instagram, That's send us true. an email, like let us know your favorite. Um, well, Thriller movie, or I guess there is also that question answer thing, right? They so, can insert a different one. Well, for Spotify listeners, for Q and A, this is just if like you heard those movies and you thought all those are basic. If you have other favorite psychological thriller mysteries, let us know. Like, put them in the Q and A. Maybe we can add them to our watch list. I watched a lot of psychological thrillers in preparation for this episode because mm-hmm. I've been like so excited to talk prisoners for a month and a half now. <laughs> we watched it like three or four times. Um, Fritz Lang's M a 1931 film, which is like a very, a very famous German expressionist film that like, uh, has been on my watch list for years now since I've had Litterboxd. I finally watched it and I'm really sad. It took me this long because it's probably the most significant on like, um, entry to the psychological thriller genre. Mm. And if people haven't seen it, it's streaming on criterion. It genuinely is one of the best movies I've ever seen. There's a lot of prisoners influenced elements of M either subconsciously from the writers or creatives or like purposely, I can't tell, but the movie is uh, fascinated by the uh, the creation of serial killers mm. and is almost like a complicated like portrait of a serial killer. Like so a mind hunter. It, it is very similar to mind hunter. I would also think of like seven, but like uh, kind of reverse it where Kevin Spacey's character is like the lead, the whole movie. Huh. And you're like kind of seeing his day to day a little bit. And so M is really, really smart in how it, how it uh, resolves itself. And I, I'm really excited for people to see the end of that movie. Cause I've, I've never quite seen anything like the end, which turns into like a legal thriller of sorts. A 1931 German mystery 
suspense thriller. Yeah. All right. I mean, it's one of the most famous movies of all time. I'm not saying anything new to like film fans here, but like I do recommend people check it out if you like this genre or like Prisoners. We also recently watched uh, Kiyoshi Kurosawa's Cure. Yeah. uh, Which shares a similar dread to the exaggerated, like yet still grounded thrillers like A Prisoners or Bong Joon-ho's Memories of Murder. I think Cure is not a movie that me or Kelsey walked away from. I don't want to speak for you, but not a movie I walked away from saying like, oh, I love this movie. Yeah. But I definitely was like, this is obviously five stars. Like, I don't even know how to yeah, rate this movie. I almost definitely. just put a heart I mean, the no cinematography, stars. like, I also, this was a movie that I really wanted to hear people talk about after. Yes. I immediately search for pods and there's not many. And yeah. it's kind of like one of those movies you can't help but give yourself over to, even if you like, don't and I don't even know if you can honestly dislike the movie because it's so ambitious and so absorbing and a little bit surreal. I think it was one of Ari Aster's favorite thrillers when he was ranking I his so, yeah. for people when he came out with Bo is Afraid. Um, so yeah, listeners, let us know in the Q&A if you have other psychological thrillers or something from that subgenre that you would like to throw in and let us know what to throw ask uh what what to throw on our watch list because mm-hmm. we have uh, an ever expanding watch list it's very (laughs) large um okay so should we get into the protein of denia a little bit yeah let's talk about his filmography before we get into prisoners so villeneuve is a french canadian filmmaker who has made 10 movies in about 25 years of making feature films he has his 11th movie coming out next spring in dune part two yeah and he has uh become one of our personal favorite directors from the show Um, he has been working in big studio projects for about a decade in the United States, even though he's been making movies for 25 years. And he's also, I think, made some of the most important movies of the 21st century in the United States with Prisoners, with Sicario, with Arrival, Blade Runner 2049, which I'm dying to talk about one day on this show. And then obviously Dune a year or two ago, uh, which is... All of those movies, by the way, were in a decade. I didn't even name Enemy, too. So that's crazy. He yeah. did all of those movies, which I feel like in the, I don't know, like the movies aren't doing like Avatar numbers. Like, you know how Avatar made billions of dollars? Mm-hmm. I've never talked to anybody out in public and they bring up Avatar. Do you know what I mean? But yeah. I have talked to people in public <laughs> where they have brought up a Denis movie. Like, even in like a movie that did not do well at the box office, like Blade Runner, people bring that film up as being something that they remember and being a very memorable theater experience. Well, I think also like to his credit. So, you know, Blade Runner has a lot of history because it is a movie that is extending a universe right from before. But I think something like Arrival is something that people, you hear people talk about all the time. Um, Even if they aren't, you know, cinephiles they know arrival the twist at the end really left a lot for people to to enjoy he said he was actually inspired by inception to make that movie which is (laughs) hilarious uh so before 2013 and before like the kind of american normie relationship to denis Villeneuve, he made a few short films in the 90s that are really hard to find i tried i couldn't um and then for the next decade basically from like 98 to 2010 ish he made uh, a few different, I think uh, four movies, non-English speaking feature films. So in preparation for this episode, even though a few of them are hard to find, I watched those four movies. Um, first in 1998 with August 32nd on Earth, which is a weird title, August 32nd on Earth. But Yeah, it reminds me of uh, Oslo. Yeah, it reminded me of Oslo too. Um, and then he also made a movie called Malstrom in 2000. And then he made two other movies about nine years later called Polytechnic and then Ansandi. And those four films are his most underseen movies, I think, even though Ansandi has taken like a little bit of a cult classic 
since Denise blown up since Blade Runner and Dune. Yeah, I um had I meant to watch those with Trey, but I just got you've been busy. Really You're busy. A PhD. Yeah. yeah, but uh, I'm excited to hear you talk a little bit about them without spoiling. So his first film, August 32nd on Earth, is unlike any of his other movies. It is like a crushingly romantic film. It's full of like charm and weird kind of absurd happiness in moments. It's like a very minimalist story and huh. it has like this deeply felt lead performance and I can't remember the actress's name but she's so fantastic in it and I was kind of I was kind of amazed at its experimental exploration of uh, a woman's traumatized psyche specifically through like a quarter life crisis that reminds me of Oslo or reminds me of a worst person in the world from Trier um, and she's kind of like throughout the film trying to fill this vacant part of herself and in subtle ways, I think it, it really is his most beautiful movie, I think, in subtle ways, mm. which is interesting because it's his first film. And surprisingly, when I went to go look at Villeneuve rankings on Letterboxd and just like on popular websites that that do rankings, it's usually the last movie on people's list. And I did not have that relationship to it. Even though I don't think he's made a bad movie, it was like in that lower middle tier. I even at one point had it right below Arrival, which is pretty impressive. Um, so speaking of Arrival, I think if people are fans of Arrival, because there are a lot of people who think that's his best work, yeah. Amy Adams' character in that movie, uh, if you like that character, August 32nd on Earth is kind of a character study of that character, but without any of the sci-fi stuff. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So I thought it was a really smart movie. I also noticed as a through line of his work, he loves playing with people who are highly educated and or professors. Yeah, he loves professors. Loves it, academics. Yeah, I was going to say that I feel like Enemy is like the exploration of Jake's character Yeah. in... Uh, prisoners. Yes. So that's funny that he has another movie that is kind of like a deeper exploration we'll, we'll of a character get in Arrival. Because J- Denise says the enemy is like his biopic of Jake Gyllenhaal, which okay. is <laughs> really funny knowing Jake Gyllenhaal's uh, life and also not so funny in certain ways. Uh, and so a few years later, after August 32nd, we get a movie called Malstrom, which is very hard to find. Uh, try your best. It is a very, very, very pitch dark comedy, like dark, dark. It mm. is so confidently and like relentlessly dark and stylish and tedious and how it's like it meditates on like just death is the best way to put it and it feels like you're watching a really tragic movie throughout the whole film but it keeps cutting to like comedic beats that don't always land but the movie is trying so hard to be a very dark black comedy and it didn't totally work for me and plus it had that like infamous early 2000s Kelsey I don't know if you this rings a bell for you but like that blown out lighting and like high contrast muted colors, like a minority yeah. report. Oh my God. I hate that lighting in the two thousands movies. It's, yeah. it, I think departed has it too. Like they're oh, punch drunk love kind of has a it too. Lot, yeah. And the, I mean, I'm just thinking of like the most popular movies, obviously like I love yeah. those movies, but yeah, it's like fluorescent lighting. It's yeah. really uncomfortable. Especially as being a teachers, viewing experience. Yeah. There's so much fluorescent lighting in yeah. education. And it's, it's a just lot. Like, it's, it's yeah. literally terrible. Uh, But yeah, it's like a really weirdly lit movie, I guess just of the time. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know. I respect the ambition to a certain extent of the film, but there's this like really confusing message, which I think is a fascinating thing to talk about eventually with Denis and woman. But there's a there's a really confusing mes- message on abortion in the movie that huh. I, I'm not sure is as successful as Villeneuve intended it to be because the film is like really, really interested in interrogating death. So like the abortion commentary is a bit misplaced to me, even though he's trying to connect the two ideas. And I think Villeneuve is like famously now at this point used to uh, kind of using woman's stories to explore specific experiences 
Um, and sometimes he explores specific experiences from a victim perspective or a survivor of something, which can be interesting, but sometimes in his early work, it's not, it doesn't all the way work. It's, it's not all the way successful. balanced. Yeah. And it's like a bit, I was a bit puzzled by a few decisions he made in this movie because like if you're a male filmmaker and your lead character is a woman, there is like an obvious responsibility you have not to exploit an obvious experience. And if you don't accomplish what you set out to do with a woman's journey, the project can kind of feel like you're, you're co-opting a woman's experience yeah, to yeah. sell like a progressive picture. Yeah. Um, and I think Malstrom is a little bit guilty of that, but it's so surreal in moments and like French new wavy <laughs> that it's kind of funny. So it, it just is the balance is not right, but he makes up for it because his next two films before prisoners and enemy around 2009 are polytechnic and Ansandi, which are, are both incredible. And specifically with polytechnic, I think, it's Villeneuve's most transgressive movie. Kelsey, you were kind of in the room a few times when I was watching this yeah. one. It's probably a masterpiece, though I think that word has not been applied to this film because it's so uh, kind of controversial and disturbing. Um, if listeners, you're not familiar with Polytechnic, uh, or, or it could be pronounced Polytechnique, but I think it's supposed to be a, a university, so it reminds me of Polytechnic, sure. how we say colleges here. Yeah. Um, I'll just say the movie is about a mass school shooting, which is not, you know, digestible for everyone which as a teacher both of us like we yeah. understand that yeah um though i do think the movie is incredibly successful at uncovering systemic and cultural problems that if not remedied or improved or reformed can only worsen with time and cause more shootings and that idea really comes across as like villeneuve's catalyst for making this movie and he really kind of treats this film as like a precursor to uh if, if you don't fix what's at the heart uh, of, of what's wrong in education, then things like domestic terrorism will happen. And again, like obviously as teachers, while we don't want staff or students to, or us on the podcast to appropriate actual school violence or shootings yeah. that people have gone through, um, there is like undoubtedly institutional failures that come across in this movie that I realized while watching it, like there is such a psychological toll on people who've worked in schools over the past decade yes, um, yeah. from students to staff. And parents, honestly, of students, too, who, who aren't in schools but still feel that from their kids or the teachers they speak to, that that is kind of lingering on a day-to-day -day basis across our country and other countries as well. And so I think this movie had like a – it hit me on different levels. Yeah. So I was just like really impressed Yeah, by I it. mean, that's something that I've like noticed just psychologically leaving uh, the classroom, like leaving the high school classroom – I used to think about a shooting every day. Like, you know yeah. what I mean? Just like as a, I know it a, a sounds, normal part it of the sound day. Dramatic, that sounds dramatic, yeah. but it's real. No, yeah, it's, it's real. a yeah, a real fear, a real kind of like always like looking out. Um, I mean, just in general, right? Because there's just so many people in a mm -hmm. school and a and but but yeah, it is a very real uh thing and I it's something that I just realized was like a weight that was kind of taken off of me when I left the classroom day to day. Yeah. To go, well, you're now you're back at the college. So it's not like the, yeah, I know yeah. it's not completely removed, but there yeah. is, yeah, the fear is still there. I, I mean, for context, like I, in my first year teaching the Parkland shooting happened and yeah. it completely changed the landscape of how schools worked and operated. It wasn't the first, obviously without the first school shooting, but then yeah. it led to more and more shootings over the next five to six years, really up into the pandemic. And after Parkland, just the classroom dynamic changed completely. Like whether it be kids screaming in hallways between classes or kids popping water bottles in yeah. the middle of class. Yeah. I think as a staff and students, obviously like we were always on alert and yeah. still are. There's like an undercurrent of fear. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, and I do think Polytechnic really captures that even though this is a shooting that happened 
Uh, I believe in the eighties. If you want to fact check that for me, that'd be helpful. I will. I just want to get that accurate year. Um, but the, the movie just really smartly understands that there is like this paradox of education, both being a support system, but also being something that's broken that only legislators can fix. So while I can't recommend the movie without a warning because it's so highly tense mm-hmm. and a really disturbing 75 minutes to watch this movie, like I don't think I've seen it be talked about as something that should be censored or something that should be like viewed as problematic. But like, I just, I feel like it's an essential text of where we are at culturally right now when it comes to mental health, when it comes to access to weapons, when it comes to education and being under-resourced. I think it, it, it needs to be talked about more. The movie needs to be talked about more. And I think when we talk about how to maybe um, express the exploitation of schools, because you and I talk about how there aren't a lot of good movies that take place yeah. in schools yeah. or great teacher films. When we express those problems of like feeling like, movies are not accurately representing what the tension is in schools and for students and teachers alike. It's often because they're already a disrespected institution and they're underfunded and under-resourced. And I do think naively maybe, but I do think movies like Polytechnic can lead to reform and conversation at the very least. Uh, I do think movies like this can have a power that lasts in the cultural subconscious not to be heady about it. So I think it's a really important film. It's probably the most important movie Denise made in his career. And it was based on uh, true events in 1989. 89. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. The last film before Prisoners and Enemies, uh, sorry, An Enemy, uh, is On Sandy. Or Enemies. Enemies. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, I think On Sandy is um, ranked in the top three movies in Villeneuve's filmography okay. for a lot of Villeneuve heads out there. I see you all. I came into this movie. Um, it was on my watch list for a long time because I'm a big Villeneuve fan, obviously. And I came into it thinking it was going to be in my top five, top four. I would have loved it. Yeah. Um, and I think the movie is objectively well-made and it's fascinating thematically, but there is just something about this movie uh, that I just didn't really like, um, which is just so surprising to me because I guess some context, Ansan D and, and Polytechnic were uh, Villeneuve's first major features in nine years. I don't know if anybody picked up on that, but I said he made... August 32nd in 1998, he made uh, Malmstrom in 2000, but then he took another, he took a decade off making feature films and just basically made commercials and music huh. videos, I think, which is something directors do to basically pay the bills yeah, and like get funding, get yeah. creative thinking back again. You know, if something happens in their life. Uh, so he took a long hiatus after Malmstrom and Ansan D is really his first real big Academy, like I believe nominated big response to his hiatus. And this movie is it's it is very good. It is a family drama that is also a devastating mystery, sometimes like deeply upsetting, like deeply. And there are lofty themes uh, similar to prisoners of religious strife. But th- in this case with Ansandi through like a Lebanese civil war that is happening usually in the major plot, but sometimes in the periphery of the movie, too. And there's also a commentary about how a knowingness of identity can validate us, but also sometimes how knowing one's identity and the history that comes with that identity can haunt us. And I'm only being a little bit like vague because the movie is really easy to spoil. Yeah, I'm interested. (laughs) I recommend watching it. It, It's a tough sit in moments, but it is like, it does resolve itself in an interesting way that I much like, um, I forget what movie we were talking about earlier, but much like uh, Cure that I wanted to hear people talk about immediately after. Uh, So it is a very interesting drama thriller Driller. Is there a drama thriller mix there? I don't know. Driller. Uh, so I do think 
I do think my relationship to Ansandi is is weird because I think a lot like Malstrom and in the future, a little bit in Arrival, maybe even Sicario with Emily Blunt and definitely in Blade Runner 2049, Villeneuve's filmography sometimes complicates itself and how much it can successfully explore a woman's struggle. Just to bring that back. Yeah. again, I know I already brought it up, but it is an issue. If you're going to yeah. pinpoint an issue in Villeneuve's yeah. work, it's not that he just has woman leads. That's not the point. It's that he's using one, uh, problems that are very specific to that gender and then using them to kind of co-opt a story and then tell ideas that he has about the world. Sure. And so I think Ansan D is like an interesting candidate for movies that can sometimes co-opt or, or arguably worse misrepresent woman-based trauma in order to get like a larger systemic hypocritical idea across. Uh, so, so when a, a film like Ansan D has this gender specific experience at the core of it, like, you know, uh, some of his other movies do some sometimes too, it doesn't totally balance the gender commentary with the more universal idea of freeing oneself from their heritage that Denis hmm. wants to get across. And so obviously I was annoyed. Like I, if anybody's annoyed listening to what I'm saying as a criticism, I was annoyed that I didn't like this movie more <laughs> because it was like, it's a Villeneuve movie that people talked about as one of his best. And so yeah. obviously I was going now into it. I'm so it. interested to watch it. Um, it says it's free on Tubi. Uh, I think I watched it on Tubi. Yeah. Mm. Um, I also did some research cause I was so kind of surprised at me not connecting to it and watching some inter interviews of Villeneuve really helped me understand why a little bit more too. I learned that Villeneuve took the movie after a decade uh, of going through personal issues in his life and uh, what he was going through lined up with the Ansandi theme of okay. escaping one's heritage. And so I think that is, you know, take that as you will. Cause my point was that he's kind of using a woman's experience uh, because maybe it cinematically is provocative. Uh, and then he is getting across an idea that is affecting him. Huh. And I, I just think like there's something a little bit cringe about yeah. that. I can't help but get a little uncomfortable. It's reminding me of like a worst person in the world, except I think worst person in the world is more successful because it's like a maybe a more universal existential story. Yes. I, that's a great take. And, and the fact that I think Renee, uh, I think that's how you say her name, Renata Rensvi. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, Renata Rensvi, she actually uh, co-wrote that movie. She's like one of the co-writers, oh, okay. but then did not get credited as a co-writer. Huh. We talked about that on our Worst Person in the World episode. Yeah. Um, all that to say in Ansandi, I cried multiple times. It was like a oh, really wow. emotional experience. And even though it had some like optimistic explorations of the gender specific trauma, which is a whole other conversation. I don't think we're going to cover that movie on this podcast. Um, and it does get in that kind of like Spielbergian Nolan esque uh, optimism, which is weird at the end of the huh. movie about like love transcending terror. Okay. Like that was kind of unfortunate. Um, but, but I think the movie does work in sentimental ways at the end. So I, I'd recommend people still watch it. It is a tough sit. Definitely not like for, for kids, okay, if you're watching it with a family, not a family movie. Love doesn't really make a lot of family movies. Yeah. I guess Arrival, sort of. I guess Arrival could be. But it's so be. tragic. Yeah, it could be a family movie, though. I was yeah. trying to look at his filmography. I guess Dune is sort of a family movie. No, that's a good call. Yeah, right. it, it is. It is. Um, I don't know if any of his other ones are ones that you would, like, watch with. So yeah. his next film he shoots after Ansandi is Enemy, your favorite movie. Do you want to Do you want to <laughs> speak on Enemies? Enemies. Um, so <laughs> this really is really funny. What year was Enemy made? 2013. The same 2013. year as well. Whoa. Yeah. So he shot Enemy back to back with Prisoners, and he was like, "I want to work with Jake. I like this guy. We drink a lot. <laughs> we talk philosophy. He's got a lot of problems. I got a lot of problems. Let's figure it out together." Um. So I think I referenced my Letterboxd review earlier in this pod, but you can go read it. Um. It 
basically just said like, I listen, I get it. Everyone. Okay. I understood mm-hmm. the metaphor. I just didn't care about the duality of men extended edition. Men. Yeah. Extended. <laughs> like it just stretched out. Yeah, exactly. Too long for my patience. And yeah. again, I get the like symbolic nature of the film. And, uh, I just didn't think, well, okay. To be fair to the movie, cause yeah. I know we do have lovers and this is not a direct shot or anything like that. It's just a personal taste. Um, I do think the concept is interesting, right? Mm-hmm. I just didn't think the film was interesting. So I, I don't know, man. I, I just, you know, with a film, neither that spoke to neither of us, um, was Bergman's persona, which yeah. is like one of the most yeah. <laughs> lauded films of yeah. all time. People love that movie. Both you and I were like, so this is how men think of women's psychological. <laughs> like this is a male's like interpretation of the duality of women. Yeah. <laughs> and um, in, in that, we both thought that movie was kind of uh, dumb. And I think that people like, like genuinely think it's one of the best movies of all time, yeah. which respect I'm saying dumb subjectively. Like I just, I read it a certain way and maybe that's not how it was intended and I need to rewatch it. But enemy, I felt kind of similar in watching yeah. it where I was like, this is like a really, um, I don't know, a, a very, a very tight idea of but what it, it's like to enemy. be a man. I like Jake Gyllenhaal's performance okay. in Enemy. I don't know if I like the movie. I also think we need a lot less yellow, even though I it understand. It felt like a short story that went way too long. Okay, that's a that's a good take in terms of the script. Yeah, I just there were parts of me that thought it was kind of corny. Yeah, at the end especially. And I did find myself on revisiting it because Kelsey had saw it for the first seen it for the first time recently, but I watched it a second time because I watched it with James like a couple of years ago. And when I watched it with James, we were both like, that's not for us. And on the <laughs> second time, I was like, oh, okay, I can like I'm following the story in a different way here, but it still did not speak to me. And yeah. that's what I mean by like a tight focus on masculinity. Like it's not like I'm not masculine. I just didn't I didn't understand where the movie was going. Like it's in inhibitions that it was talking about when it comes to men and the pressures that they yeah. that they feel in the world of like uh, the sin that they're going to commit. Like I just, there was nothing I, that really spoke to yeah, me. Yeah. I think, um, I'm just going to skip over Sicario real quick in his filmography okay. in 2015 and, and say that I think arrival in 2016 is actually a better enemy. Like this idea of creating our reality mm-hmm. and choices that we make. He likes professors. Um, there's kind of a big debate around this one and kind of a similar, uh, you know, lingering ending that he has in a lot of his films, but specifically it seems to be like a pointed question, maybe that he's asking both an enemy and a rival. Okay. Interesting. I was realizing when it's not the it, same question by well, any means. That's what I was like, going to say. I, w- I was realizing when trying to explain enemy on this podcast now that I don't have a fully developed idea of why I don't like that movie. So arrival I, uh, enemy, oh, but, enemy. but I okay. do with arrival. I just think arrival is just way more concentrated of an idea. Yeah. Like I think it, it gets it across really well. I do think politically Sicario and arrival are kind of weird movies mm-hmm. that I would, I, that I both think are above four star movies. Sicario is some of the most important and influential action scenes of this past decade. Arrival is one of the most important science fiction films of this past decade. But I do, I do find those movies, especially arrivals like centrism being really weird. And then Sicario's politics are very odd and all over the place. And so I, I think that those movies are, would be a fascinating deep dive one day on our, on our show. Yeah. Um, you know, what is so weird? I always think because of arrival, um, and because of 
uh, like Amy Adams in Denis filmography. And then also Jake having like a really prominent, um, you know, part of his filmography. Mm-hmm. I always think of nocturnal animals because yeah. that came out, I think in 2016 also. Mm-hmm. Um, and because it has Jake and Amy in it, but a disturbing movie, uh, one of the most disturbing movies, um, that I've seen. And I think also another example, um, I think who is a screenplay by, it says Tom Ford, but adapted, from yeah, okay. Ford made the movie. He yeah, directed so, it. Yeah. So it was I think that's also another good example of like a co-opting <laughs> women's experience. I haven't I haven't also watched it in a long time, but I just remember being like deeply disturbed and I don't remember yeah. like what the ultimate purpose was. We haven't rewatched that one since I've, we saw it. I've rewatched it since I saw it. So also that could be totally off. Like maybe I don't even remember the ending to be honest. So Okay, so we like Sicario like Arrival. I'll say I rewatched Arrival recently. I think Sicario is a little bit better for me on my personal list. Okay. Uh, Blade Runner 2049. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. Um, this that, is, is my it? favorite Denis movie. Okay. Yeah. We I was going to ask Ryan. you. I figured. Yeah. And you know, well, so I took Trey to see Blade Runner 2017. Um, 2017. I haven't <laughs> seen that one yet. 20... <laughs> I'm excited though. Is that like, <laughs> that's like the prequel it's the in between it's yeah. It's like, <laughs> That would be such a really yeah. Scott thing to do. It's like the new <laughs> but it has, like, Hunger Games to do with Blade Runner coming out. What's the Hunger Games movie? It's like President's President. It's President Snow, Snow as a child. Okay. Yeah, he's like a hot teen, like hot, yeah. like kind of like young person or something <laughs> like that. I don't know. It's President Snow's story of being a hot teen. I mean, that's what they're trying to frame him <laughs> no, as. I know. I they're know, like giving him so, that like Edward from so Twilight, funny. like a twenty-five-year-old playing an eighteen. It's like, what are we doing here? Why are we doing this still? Yeah, I guess he does feel like Edward from from Twilight. Yeah. Um. Okay. So sorry. Back to Blade Runner yeah. twenty forty-nine. Um. Made in twenty seventeen. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That makes more sense. Um, anyway, I took Trey to see a screening of this movie for his birthday as a surprise last in year, right? DC last year. Yeah. And what this a surprise! Is a movie. If this comes back in theaters for anyone, like don't miss it. It is the sound mixing and the experience. Yeah. Like just seeing space on the big screen in that way. Um, I feel like all of the hype around Dune should be like redirected towards this movie. We don't see space in Blade Runner, but we do see space in Dune. We see space in Blade Runner. There's a lot of space as in like open space because it's a dystopian world that they're living in, but there's no space. They don't leave earth. I just watched it like two nights ago. I guess that's true. Yeah, I just watched it. <laughs> Maybe I'm just thinking about like it in terms of, you know, like replicants and like, yeah, he has a spaceship. We associate, we should say <laughs> me and you, Kelsey's had to live with me giving her like the theories of the connections between Prometheus and Blade Runner for like the past decade. So I think it's totally fine for you to associate Blade Runner with space because I've been saying for so long, I'm like Ridley Scott's ultimate mission is to try to connect the Blade Runner universe to alien. Yeah. But it also like, you know, he's like explicitly like, already done it, but world colonies. Yeah. Like it is a, it is a space movie. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's it, not. Okay. Listener, new poll in the Spotify. No, I'm going to win this one. I mean, people are going to want to support because like, I, I feel like you're probably the favorite co-host of the two <laughs> of us, but I, I just, I don't think this is a space movie. Okay. It's like a Dune. sci-fi noir and okay. in space. <laughs> okay. It's in space as in on earth. Uh, I think you're thinking maybe of Dune because a lot of it takes place on a planet. Okay. Arrakis or whatever. Yeah. Is it Arrakis? Is that the planet? I don't know. Honestly, we also haven't read the Dune book. So like we're not we going very to very limited knowledge of the Dune series. Should we start talking about Dune a little bit? Yeah. Dune. Uh, we saw it. I walked out of the theater and I was like, huh, 
didn't know anything going into this. I didn't know any of the stuff about the Herbert novels. I've never read them. I didn't have any friends who read them. I always looked at them as like the nerdier Lord of the Rings. Like I had no <laughs> concept of Dune. And I walked in the movie for Chalamet and for Villeneuve, Zendaya. I walked out and was like, I didn't realize this was like an epic Messiah film. Yeah. I didn't realize that this was going to be like this is like people's favorite series of all time. Well, you know, it so, is a lot of people's Lord of the Rings. So when me, you and James walked out of the IMAX on this and we saw it on a true IMAX, like one of the biggest ones in the country, mm-hmm. we were like, wow, that was, you know, which we o- only found out when we were moved away. We were like, oh, my yeah. God, we didn't we have know no what access we had. to this yeah. privilege anymore. <laughs> uh, I think both of us, though, were like, oh, that was all three of us said that was one of the most technically impressive movies we've ever seen. Yeah. And we've said the same thing about Blade Runner 2049. And I think Denis has such uh, an eye for how to capture space uh, that I think that sounds <laughs> That's stupid. That's right. Space. space. In Blade Runner but, and in Dune. But obviously it's not just him working on the films, but like it, I think there was a little bit of criticism that Deakins was the only reason Villeneuve was great, which we haven't brought up. But people oh, were arguing true. that yeah. Roger Deakins There's is the real filmmaker behind Denis Villeneuve, yeah. um, which was bullshit, obviously, yeah. even though Deakins is a Hall of Famer and we'll talk about him today because Prisoners has yeah. some of the best cinematography in any of the thrillers that we've mentioned today. Um, but there was something about Dune that set an atmosphere about space that I hadn't felt well, since like watching able to capture, a Scott movie like Prometheus or yeah. Alien. I think being able to capture like new places and have like a kind of culture immediately assigned to that place. Like yeah. you're like, Whoa, I am in a very like specific point in time or, or location. Like when he goes to the emperor army, you know, sure. I, hopefully I'm saying that right. Is, is it the I mean, we've emperor only who's in charge? Se- we've only seen the movie once and we have it on 4k. <laughs> Sorry, Dune and, fans. And we, we're going to see it a second time because we're, we're going to do an episode on it next year. Oh, definitely. When part two comes out. Yeah. Um, but I'm trying to do an episode. I want to be the Dune podcasters for people who know nothing about Dune. Yeah. Does that make sense? Because everyone's trying to do the opposite. They're trying to read all the novels. They're yeah. trying to know as much. We're I want to be not trying to know. <laughs> I, like I am just guessing at this point that like, Paul, is that his name? Timothy Chalamet's character? Paul Atreides. Yeah. Atreides. Paul is supposed to be basically um, a false messiah figure. That's what we think. And then he's probably going to end up being a Kylo Ren figure. That's what we think. Based off of the kind of like things in the 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 trailer and the... Yeah. The, well, even of, at the like, end of the first shadowing. Yeah. The they, fundamentalism they that us. controls the universe. I'm like, okay, I kind of see where they're going with this. But also I just know Denise, you know, a little fucked up. Yeah. And then Chalamet, his favorite performance that made him become an actor is Heath Ledger's Joker. And he's been wanting something like that in his career. And we're Chalamet, huge fans. Yeah. And so we know that about Our him. Guy, Timmy. And so when I heard he was doing Paul, I was like, why is he doing this? Because Leo DiCaprio said, don't do superheroes, but he's doing the opposite of a franchise. Yeah. But he's, but he's playing a villain. Like that's, I mean, again, these are non Dune people. I'm just assuming that (laughs) just think, yeah, yeah. but I guess you don't have to be like a genius to figure that out. Like Like we are Mr. Wonka, Prince Jesus. He's got quite the agent. Yeah. Character. This is good things. We are in conversation with his agents currently. (laughs) Uh, so we're pro pro Um, agents of Chalamet. Yeah. But I definitely like not a perfect movie in my eyes, even though I really did enjoy it. I think I liked it more than you and James, but yeah. Um, it's just that I wish we got more before the whole battle happened. I wanted more like character development and maybe that's not how the novel goes, but that's personally what I wanted from the story. Like it was a lot of like Timmy and like mom just like on, the, on the run. Yeah. Like uh, in like sand dad tents <laughs> and like just in the sand trying to survive like pace wise. It was, it was just it was off tough. for me a little bit. Yeah. And so I was like, I was really excited when we were in kind of the like, 
um, more character building familial moments and the war moments. And I was like, just give me more of the Bene Gesserits, if that's how you say it, of like the, like, bring me the water thing. Like, <laughs> and I like, cause ultimately I will watch any sci-fi epic. Okay. Actually, that's not true. Whatever Cara Delevingne was in. I, I, I don't know if I'll watch that. I'm the only so fan. will watch any sci-fi that, epic. I will it, watch <laughs> most sci-fi epics because like, give me, you know, uh, a story about space, like a war story, politics and empires in space. Like shout tell me where my, to sign. You know? I want to shout out my Valerian people out there. Okay. <laughs> I see my Cara Delevingne stands and I, I agree with you that she should be bigger than she is in acting at the very least. Uh, all your takes on Dune are great. All I had to say about it was it's obviously a sci-fi epic that I felt tonally with, or um, pacing wise, like what you were saying was a little bit all over the place. Uh, but that also, was after Austin Butler's about to one watch be on the screen as Elvis, Elv- as Elvis, as a very Dune white too. Elvis. <laughs> if white, if if you can be whiter than Elvis, then it, then he's going to be. Uh, okay, so what time are we at on this episode? <laughs> We're like at an hour. We haven't gotten to prisoners. Welcome to the episode of Denis Villeneuve's <laughs> filmography. We should just like. Re- <laughs> we should just edit this out and just stick it as an hour of yeah. Denise filmography. Um, no, that was a terrible rundown of his, of his, it's funny. His first four non-English features. I feel like we just kind of really deeply explored them in his most famous movies. We were like, yeah, they're all pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll talk about them more when Dune 2 comes out. Okay. Okay. Let's get to prisoner. Let's do it. Let's listen yeah. to a trailer. I am taking requests. Yes. No. Mommy, can I take Joy to our house? Wear a hat, please. Where are sisters? Anna? Joy? I couldn't find them! Detective Loki, I'm going to find your daughter's... An RV was reported matching the description. Show me your hands! You put those girls somewhere, Alex. I know you put those girls somewhere. We didn't find anything. This thing's clean. The police said they're letting him go. He knows. I can see it in his eyes. We run out of time. And every day, she's wondering why I'm not there. This guy's a fake. The girls are still out there. What in the world did you do? Someone has to make him talk or they're going to die. Prisoners. Okay, so 2013's Prisoners. One of the best films of all time. I'm just kidding. Uh, No, but one of my favorite movies of the past decade at the very least. Uh, So... Let's talk a little bit about the, the the making of the motivation to make prisoners for okay. Denis Villeneuve was to highlight like a universal struggle. And it sounds kind of basic, but he really just wanted to get this main message across because he believes in spectacle films to at least have like a very accessible through line, which is that everybody's a prisoner to their past. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like that's kind of the main idea here, except he kind of reframes it as being a prisoner to someone's ego or sense of uh, self-worth or their uh, kind of exceptional identity that they feel that they have. And the movie is really exploring the ways that we're kind of imprisoned at young ages and never really get out of those cages as we get older. Yeah. And I think when Villeneuve, you know, he's, he's only done a few interviews for this movie, but when he, he talked a little bit about when he read the prisoner script and he felt that the text was obviously very explicit in like the mystery of it all, and maybe even kind of giving away too much and uh, maybe even playing with cliches a little bit too much, but he loved that the text would offer him a lot of flexibility for big ideas that the, that the script did have. And so he knew he wanted to make a financially successful studio film. 
that would be able to reach a larger audience. And he knew that he wanted to play in this psychological thriller genre, uh, especially like the reveal heavy mystery genre, because he knew that that could be something that was critically and financially successful that could also make him more famous and give him access to yeah. make sci-fi movies, which was one of his dreams because he's a huge Spielberg guy. But I think obviously like all of his movies, he's also interested in like what ordinary people will do in times of extreme duress and then trying to provoke audiences in uncomfortable ways. And sometimes his movies are very successful in that. And sometimes they have weird pacing, like what you were talking about in Dune, which Mm -hmm. he was trying to show Chalamet and his mom, like basically go through, uh, they were ordinary people going through extreme duress. Like that was the point. Or well, they weren't ordinary people. They were like, royalty i know but, but that's the that is the <laughs> message he's trying to get across at least in this okay. massive epic but i think it's the most successful in prisoners because it's a very grounded movie yeah and he said he was deeply attracted by the idea that there's a tension between individuals and their trust in institutions and he thought that uh, it was a very contemporary subject that particularly in america that our films struggle to talk about and that he felt that we have a very strong sense of individualism here which was basically him saying that we're all self-obsessed yeah (laughs) uh which was a a very well you know a very smart way to put it and when i heard that i obviously wanted to like listen to every one of his interviews but like i said he doesn't do many interviews on his movies that are too in-depth and around 2013 he definitely wasn't doing a lot of interviews on prisoners but there are a few that i've watched multiple times that right uh recently because i just can't believe that he actually kind of said this because i can't believe he pitched this as an idea but he wanted to represent the contradictions of a post 9-11 North American culture, which, you know, in 2013, 12 years out from, from September 11th, but still like not exactly a culture that's willing to like go pay money to go see a post 9-11 anxiety inducing thriller. Yeah. So he had to really like hide that subtext, but he was fascinated about it from not just a U.S. perspective, but also he's Canadian. And then obviously like he noted and, and, it's obvious to our listeners that the U S and Canada had massive roles in invading the middle East and searching Mm -hmm. for weapons of mass destruction and committing acts of torture and destabilizing countries or accelerating civil wars across the middle East that were already there previously, but weren't as exaggerated as they were. And Mm -hmm. so like, that's been a pretty heavy criticism on Western culture throughout all of like political conversations over the past 20 years. Or if you want to go back to the 70s, you definitely can. So the past 50, 60 years. Um, but to put that kind of criticism at the the heart of the subtext of this movie is fascinating. And so Villeneuve said he was really attracted by this idea that he could make a blockbuster thriller that could make a lot of money. A lot of people could go see this movie while still getting ideas across about North American goals of like hegemonic supremacy, like really lofty stuff. Mm-hmm. Um and then trying to show how the United States or Canada used this pretense of vengeance for terrorism on 9-11 by extremists. And, uh, you know, people might not like that subtext in the film or people might not, not even care about that subtext or not want to see it. And he in, said in that movie. In, in interviews, right? He you did said, say yeah. that he thinks that people won't want to see it, okay. see those themes in this film. And I think if everybody's like willing to read the movie that way, um, then Hugh Jackman's character, Keller Dover, and his relationship to Alex uh, is really tragic in this movie because when you put that that lens on it, that kind of like post-9-11 lens on it, it becomes even more depressing. So Villeneuve's whole transgressive career has kind of like led up to this point in 2013 to making Prisoners and then getting to work with Roger Deakins who loved Ansan D mm-hmm. and he also loved um, Polytechnic. And so 
I think a lot of ways, in a lot of ways, Prisoners is probably the movie that sets up Villeneuve's like Hollywood potential to make provocative sci-fi epics because he impressed so many studios with how this movie made money because it made $120 million. It tripled yeah. its budget, which you don't see like detective stories like what Kelsey was saying about a lot of these films that ha- are in this genre being sent to TV and streaming. That's because studios believe they can't fund these because they'll make any money. Yeah. And so the fact that it did, I mean, a lot of it has to do with Jake Gyllenhaal and Hugh Jackman being Wolverine sure. and all yeah. that. But I just, I also think there's word of mouth that goes around quickly. And this movie is... It is sometimes experimental in the way it lingers in its cinematography. And it's also like a mainstream, like cliche blockbuster. So I think that studios were so impressed with prisoners that it led to other movies. Like we said in the future, like parasite, even getting like more of an audience because they're a little bit surreal in their social messages, though parasite a lot more so. Um, But I just wanted to mention that as Villeneuve's like motivation in making this movie, because I think this movie gets reduced too much as a B film in comparison to his feature filmography. But there is no Blade Runner without prisoners. There isn't a Dune without this movie. It really is his key to Hollywood in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I have seen a lot of people talk about prisoners as again, this like B true crime movie with Hollywood actors. Like you were just saying, like Jackman and Gyllenhaal. Yeah. But I mean, there are obviously a lot of crime thriller elements that we are used to seeing, like the gray blue color palette, like or what we call now the Ozark color palette. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Like there's a killer in your neighborhood that you don't suspect, right? Or like this idea of like danger at your your back door. Like Mm -hmm. um, there's always there's like a mourning family conflict with the detective, right? Communication issues and dark scenes of grieving like detective conflict with sub suspects. Like there's a lot of, you know, things that we expect from a crime thriller movie that are just like a part of the nature of it. But I would argue that this movie is actually doing more thematically. Like we talked about, maybe we can get into that with, especially with the characters, but especially around the focus of religion prisoners actually has a lot in common with, um, maybe not story wise, but why I love the movie Spotlight from 2015. Oh, wow. Yeah. Why is that? Well, I think I, I've just thought of this. So this will maybe be a broken thought, but I think it's the same way that people are investigating um, something that is happening. Right. And it like the all of the clues are like leading to a larger problem and, and maybe a deeper like institutional issue. Um, okay, think, so like one mystery leads to many, leads yeah. to an institutional failure. Yeah, and okay. I think that in Spotlight, that's obviously like very explicit and a part of why I, I think that story is really important. And like, I, I think it's a great movie. Mm-hmm. But I think in Prisoners, it's actually a little bit more um, subtle in terms of like, it doesn't explicitly point to an institution. You have to kind of think about like, how does this character represent an institution? Yeah, that reminds me of a movie. Uh, what is the film with Michael Mann? Is it Inside? Hold on, I gotta figure this out. Inside Man? No, <laughs> Inside Michael. <laughs> Michael Mann. The Insider. The Inside Insider. Inside Michael uh, Mann. The Insider. Good film. Al Pacino, Russell Crowe. That reminds me of that kind of mystery thriller procedural. Wait, drama. which movie? Sorry, I totally. You've never it. seen. I was it. looking at a picture it's of called Michael the, Mann. The Insider. <laughs> okay. I was thinking of Spike Lee's Inside Man, but like, I think uh, the movie's called The Insider. Okay. Never mind. But yeah, I understand your point, which is just kind of like these mysteries revealing themselves to the character who is like a detective, but also could be a reporter. In your, you know, your spotlight is example. So I think that really works. I think it's a really 
great point to explain why prisoners is more nuanced than it seems because a character does represent a larger institutional problem. And that is a hard thing to pull off yeah. in a genre film like this. Um, yeah. So I think this movie is littered with like disturbing parallels and themes. And I think the script is great. It's a confrontational text. I recommend people read it. Uh, obviously the post nine 11 commentary stuff, but also Villeneuve really takes, I think like a sociological psychological character study interest in a lot of these um, capital A acting mm-hmm. performances from mm-hmm. from Jackman and uh, Gyllenhaal and Melissa Leo. Um, and I also think Villeneuve plays with that ethical dilemma, universal question about the like possible American moral values that are compromised when an American family and identity is deeply challenged by something foreign. Mm-hmm. And I think that ethical dilemma has been done a lot worse in other blockbusters like we've talked a lot about on our show. Um, and we'll get to some of those examples later, but I think he, he does that perfectly in prisoners. We should probably get into the, a little bit of the plot, a little bit of the protein. Okay. Uh, so prisoners like Kelsey talked about earlier, cleverly begins a little subversively with symbolism and motifs and contradictions kind of everywhere in the first few frames of the movie. The opening scene really tells you like how this movie is going to feel in its atmosphere. Yeah. Uh, we start with the opening shot of Keller Dover played by Hugh Jackman and his son, Ralph Dover played by Dylan Minnette. Yes. Who we know from 13 reasons why. Yeah. Who we're fans of. We're fans. Of, I've heard a lot of, you know, other takes on, on Dylan. I, I like him. I think they're, I forget what season of it is of that show. It is. Cause I think that show ran for like three seasons too, too many, but there is a season where I was like, this is one of the best high school performances I've seen. He feels very Dylan O'Brien. Don't say that about Dylan O'Brien. Okay. Uh, so <laughs> Ralph Dover played by Dylan Minnette kills a deer, um, which in the theater, like how we talked about earlier was kind of wild because the sound design of the gunshot being linked up to the religious words. It was like really immersive and absorbing and the weight of the sounds while Dover eerily says grace is just a lot. Yeah. And it's like perfectly consuming and like just the best haunting introduction to a uh, low key Thanksgiving movie like this kind of a Thanksgiving film. I guess it is. Yeah. (laughs) If you're into watching horror films with your family at Thanksgiving. Uh, So what else do I want to say about the plot? I guess in terms of the setting, even though the film is shot in Atlanta, Georgia, we're supposed to be in this rural suburb, uh, suburban area outside mm-hmm. of like a small fictional town of Pennsylvania, which, you know, we've said on the pod from our experience living in Virginia, that's where we're from. And my personal time living in West Virginia for a year or two, and then being both of us being in and out of Pennsylvania quite a bit through our childhood mm-hmm. and adult lives. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought this was like a pretty honest depiction of an exaggerated working class middle America in that region. Yeah. So that's the setting. We're in this rural Pennsylvania suburb. We go on a psychological journey into like a broken American psyche turns into a sort of American nightmare in certain points of this movie. And we're introduced to two families that we're going to follow throughout the film, the Dovers and the Birches both living a sort of middle-class lifestyle with some suggestions of a class commentary. Mm-hmm. I think the Deacon cinematography is like careful to show differences in both of their homes yeah. aesthetically and the infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And then throughout the film, you gather from their actions that the Dovers and the Birches might have some political differences too, which I, I wish they yeah. went to a, a little bit more, but mm-hmm. it's cool just to know that it's there at least. Yeah. Um, so we have Keller and Grace Dover and frankly, Franklin and Nancy Birch as the parents hanging out after Thanksgiving dinner with their oldest children, Ralph and uh, Eliza. I just think Ralph's a, a funny name for <laughs> Dylan Minnette. Uh, shout out our, our shout out our Ralph listeners. To our Ralphs. Yeah. I don't <laughs> okay. know. That was a really hard sentence to say. Uh, so we have Ralph and Eliza are like watching SpongeBob in the basement or something. And then the youngest daughters, Joy and Anna 
ask their parents if they can leave the house to go back to the Dovers to look for a lost whistle. And basically, we get a really eerie, iconic shot of a tree for 15 seconds. We do. It's like an ominous, yeah. like kind of zoom in on a, on a tree, a slow well, zoom. The star spangled banner is being played on a trumpet. That's true. And in a lot of ways in this movie, the trees feel like characters. I'm not sure how to unpack that. I know <laughs> Dover works. He's a, a carpenter and the birches, that's wood, right? That's a tree. <laughs> I don't know. The tree The tree theme doesn't totally work for me, but I think it's a great shot. The I eerie kind of shot on the tree. Yeah, I have to think more about it, but I think it's like more so establishing setting and like establishing like... I think so too. Place a mood. as... Well, no, not necessarily a mood, but like place as something that is thematic. I was also thinking of like how this this region, this area has been left to rot is like a theme they're trying to get across in mm. terms of like the failed American project. And I think they're trying to use this like decay of the trees <laughs> just kind of being like dead everywhere like in the winter? background. Yeah, okay, exactly. <laughs> uh, it's kind of like we're entering hell a little bit in certain moments of this movie. Huh. So we learned quickly that the girls were kidnapped by someone in an RV. And the movie goes from like this creepy and like haunting, rainy, off-putting. yeah. I said Thanksgiving drama into something of like a horror movie in moments. And really like the mystery of the psychological thriller takes off from there when we're introduced to detective Loki. Yes. Uh, one of the yeah. worst names ever in, in movie history, but we're big Jill and Hall people or I am at the very least. And so therefore detective Loki works. And then we also are introduced eventually to the kidnapper, Holly Jones and her victims, Alex Jones and Bob Taylor, as well as other side characters that we'll get into. And so that plot that I just said is basically the entertaining mystery movie plot uh, that what I think people call the B movie. Sure. Those were the B movie elements. Okay. Um, but I think screenwriter Aaron Gazakowski does a phenomenal job because even though the movie is focused on the familiar mystery we've been talking about throughout this episode that is really well made, even though it has cli- a lot of cliches and some really like hyper performative performances and moments. <laughs> yeah. We'll definitely talk about those later too. The because slamming I know, on the car. Yeah. yeah. A lot of people have criticisms of Hall and Jackman. Yeah. I think all that's still well made enough for you to forgive it. Sure. And then the Me symbolism and then like the character observations, there's just so many things to talk about. I think specifically we can start like with the relationship between individuals and institutions and like Americans obsession with individualism that Denise seemed like really interested in. As okay. Like, so just the small things. Yeah. Just the small, tiny <laughs> things that he's interested in. We're going pure pretentious or I am at the very least because my birthday pod, I don't care. It's Denise's birthday too. We're going crazy tonight. <laughs> it's Denise's birthday. Uh, but I think um, when I say like American obsession with individualism, I'm using that word in like a stained political sense. I don't mean that word in like a, a human way. And I think Denise does a great job illustrating that like flawed dynamic and it's the the kind of like de- distrust between individuals and institutions through Dover and Loki really well. They're kind of also like ironically linked to religion in a lot of mm-hmm. ways and spirituality yeah. and, and existentialism. And I think, you know, if this is where you check out of being a fan of prisoners and getting in these like heady conversations, I get it. But I do think, again, this movie is so essential to Denise's filmography because a lot of the things that like Christopher Nolan, James Cameron are lauded for today, I think Denise does really effectively in this movie, which is like merge that like that commentary with the genre. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I think these two characters is, is how he does that. I think first off with like Keller Dover, this movie, the people who like this movie, who've talked to us like non movie goers, like Kelsey, we've both been in the situation where non movie goers have spoken to us about this film. Yeah. When they say they like it, 
They say they like it because they understand what Keller Dover did to get his daughter back. Yeah. Which Isn't is fascinating. that fascinating? Yeah, yeah. I think so. There, There's like two criticisms. I, or maybe not two criticisms, but two, maybe like major things I see come out of this movie mm-hmm. where someone will say like, well, I figured it out. So it wasn't yeah. that interesting to <laughs> yeah. me. And like my argument for that is I think like the story is a little bit richer than the, just the plot to me, even yeah. though I didn't figure it out. Okay. <laughs> the first time I watched it. Um, but I think also the second thing, um, is that, well, well, first of all, so, sorry, back on that point. Like, I do think it's also a rewarding rewatch even once you figure it out. Yeah. Um, but the second point I think is like that there's this ethical dilemma subversion from mm-hmm. Denis, right? Like you're right. People walk out of the movie asking each other sort of similar, similar like dilemma questions, uh, that they do in arrival, right? Yeah. Would you have made that decision or not? And instead they're like, Oh, I understand Hugh Jackman's character or asking was Hugh Jackman's character. Right. And I, and I think that that's actually not the central question in this movie though. Like, yeah. yes, of course there are interesting ethical dilemmas about what people are capable of for sure. But I think with Jackman's character, like Villeneuve is trying to examine how we rationalize violence or behaviors in general. And so mm-hmm. while I didn't, en- you know, I did not enjoy enemy. Um, I think it <laughs> is kind of a good education just in terms of understanding how Denis is viewing his male figures. Like he's not uplifting Jackman by any means. And like, for example, we have yeah. dialogue from Jackman's son repeating why um or the the kind of rationale behind why they have to kill the deer and then that's kind of juxtaposed with holly jones right the character her war on god yeah totally i think those are the big ones like we're about to get into the characters a little bit more because i think instead of talking about themes in like a really egotistical way i think what's more fascinating (laughs) is probably the character studies in this movie and like what these characters are representing on like a lot in a lot of different layered ways. Um, but I do want to just bring this up because it made me think about it when you said the ethical dilemma of like people putting themselves in the shoes of Keller Dover, like, would you save your daughter? Yeah. Like if her life depended on it, what would you do? How far would you go? And that is what people tend to note to us when they say they like this movie. And in our anecdotal experience, what's interesting is the Duffer brothers took away, took that away from this movie too. And that's what inspired them to write stranger things. Interesting. Yeah. The relationship between Hopper and 11 is totally out of the Keller Dover relationship to, to did they say that in an interview? They did. Yeah. Whoa. I know that's so weird. Wait, it really clicked for me. Season one of stranger things really clicked for me when I heard them say that recently. Yeah. Okay. So, um, Hopper is, is Hugh Jackman in this situation. Yeah. And and he is like this tension of wanting to save his daughter at all costs because he lost his daughter. Like Hopper did spoiler alert uh, alert. Yeah. He lost his actual daughter. That, yeah, past, I think it's okay. Which is kind of like Dover losing his father. He just doesn't want to lose family. Also, again. it's not totally a spoiler. It's like the second episode of season one that you find that out. <laughs> do you? Okay. I'm pretty sure. I guess they you do don't tell find you why out he's depressed. Why. They, well, you don't t- tell you why. Oh, that's right. When you do but find out know. why, it's devastating. Yeah. yeah. Um, Not a Stranger Things pod. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I think after watching this movie so many times and then listening to Villeneuve speak on it over the years and then wa- watching things again like Enemy, I do think that the ethical dilemma of how much violence is necessary to save your loved ones, as you put it, is really just used to sell this movie yeah. to American audiences who are obsessed with this idea. <laughs> and I truly believe that like that dilemma is mostly a misdirect for the creatives to explore like a deeper American guilt for our own role in continuing terrorism. Like that's like really Denis, what he's like explicitly said in interviews, like that was his motivation in making this movie. Um, and maybe it being lost on people. I don't know if that means it's successful or not. 
Because yeah. it is seemed to, it does seem to be lost. Well, at the very least, like even if you're not going like really into the choices that are made, you know, there is like uh, something happening uh, a little bit below the surface in terms of like uh, nationalism Mm -hmm. and religious imagery, right? Like the Dover household has like the deer images versus the religious statues and the Jones household, like the kidnappers. And so Dover is like a really interesting um, figure because of the way not people aren't talking about him in a heroic way, but there is like a, a relatable way. Yeah or, yeah. or like something about like, right. Um, talking about not forgiving his behavior. I don't know the word for it, but like he is a contradictory character I and mean, he's a very human character, but like, um, it, it's just fascinating that that is like a well, response. The, the problem with the ethical dilemma that is at the heart of Dover's character is that it's a red herring. Like philosophically, yeah. it's the train dilemma. It's the trolley dilemma. We talked about it on the last of us pods. We've talked about it on the dark <laughs> yeah, night yeah. pods. It's an ethical dilemma to provoke an audience about a problem that is not real. And that that's, that's the, that is the kind of like alluring part of this ethical dilemma commercially, because it's not like people have fully tried to think that idea out. It's just an attractive thing to latch onto because it gives you a sense of agency that you would do anything to save your family. Yeah. Well, like this isn't spoiling anything from the last of us, but there is definitely like this, uh, continuous, like either or rhetoric, right? Like, you know, there are people who want, I forget what Joel's like, um, one liner was there are like some people who want to like save the world and some people who yeah, don't. And, yeah. Like, and it feels like Keller Dover's character is kind of like in that vein. His too, yeah. political philosophy. No, but, but I think it's deeper than that. I just think does Joel vote. No one has answered our question yet. We need to know. <laughs> did Joel vote pre pandemic? Does Keller Dover vote? Does he? Oh, I feel like he, I, I saw favorite song is the star spangled banner. That's tough. I think maybe he does. I don't I, know. Yeah. So, somebody wrote a whole essay know. on the prisoner's 10 year anniversary about how he would have been a January uh, uh, six writer. Oh God. And I was like, oh, that's tough. I don't think that. I don't think this is that character, but I think it's an interesting reading. I don't think he's like hyper-nationalist to the point where he's like, I do think the Star Spangled Banner thing is a bit much. (laughs) I mean, there is like, there are conspiracy, you know, theories. Theory stuff going on. Within their right. Um, Yeah, yeah. The basement. But but I think, yeah. So it's kind of, (laughs) we're going way off in tangents, but I think that like, that is more so um, supposed to really hone in on this theme of, it's us against them. Like yeah. that kind of uh, mentality that Keller Dover represents this idea of like, he tells his son at the very beginning of the movie that we're going to have, we're going to be in a situation where it's like um, people just kind of lose their, their morals and it, and you have to basically fend for yourself. And like, that's kind of the, yeah. what he has been taught uh, from his grandfather, he said, and he's trying to instill that in his son and this kind of like individualistic idea um, that is well, then, that's then connected to his um, nationalism slash. I mean, some people might see it as patriotism, but I think it's supposed to stand for nationalism in terms of like him singing the star spangled banner in the shower. I mean, that that's just a red flag right there. I yeah, mean, yeah. Like, that's the beginning of a Jordan Peele movie. <laughs> that's a good take. Uh, I think the, the purpose of his character is really clear when you juxtapose him to Loki, because that's really like the institution versus the yeah. individual and like really trying to show how far will Dover abuse his uh, set, like self-worth, like his, his own idea of his own power and agency, almost like a libertarian philosophy. Like, is he willing to really push that dichotomy between him and Loki and like push that institution and, and act as if it is not doing its job. And really, I think that's the tension of the movie is yeah. like this movie's gotten people to like argue, like would Dover have 
would he have found the kids in a sense if mm-hmm. never uh, taking Alex, which we could talk about would a little Loki bit today. Would Loki have found? Or yeah, would the Loki kids have found the kids? If Dover never yeah, took thank Alex. You. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I think is like a really uninteresting question because that's just like not the point of the film. <laughs> yeah. But again, I think that is the misdirect. It's like of the, the surface. Movie. Yeah, yeah. I, I, that kind of like pulls you in as this like again like what we were talking about this ethical dilemma of how far would someone go or what are you capable of? But I think like even more so at at the heart of Dover also like Hugh Jackman's character is his like strong convictions as the head of this like traditional patriarchal family. Like he is the patriarch. He is the savior like in his family. And he's really doubled down in that idea um, in terms of like keeping his family safe by any means necessary. And um, like I said, this idea at the beginning of the movie, he tells his son in the car that we need to be prepared, right? Like this idea of paranoia that we were talking about before um, in terms of like how delusional the movie. Yeah. Like in, He's talking about how it's it's us against them, like things will lose order. He just like further is rationalizing this individualistic pursuit um, of like fearing other people throughout the movie. And it kind of reminded me of uh, we just recently um, it's the first time I've watched The Witch. But it kind of reminded oh, me when the yeah. father and son were like hunting in the woods. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, so I think Dover is fascinating because he is tragic. Like you do sympathize with him because he has this unresolved trauma with his father. Mm-hmm. And then he has like produced this apocalyptic fearing philosophy because of it. And that's why he keeps his family prisoner, which I think is the theme of the movie that mm, yeah. I don't hear discussed, which is like not only is Keller Dover a prisoner to his own like kind of you know, trauma, unresolved grief. It's also that he's keeping his family prisoner. Like he's holding them in a home full of resources in their basement to save them from issues that are not going to happen or problems that are not going to happen. This movie just like prompts you to think that they do happen. Sure. And yeah. I think that's, that's an interesting idea because uh, like, if you look at the, if you look at the character through that lens, he's like not letting his son buy a car. He's uh, medicating his wife. He's like telling her thing. He's like basically sedating her and telling her that like th- what we learn from her is that what she says, what we're supposed to read is tragic. Like you were going to protect us. She said something mm-hmm. to that effect. Like you promised you would always protect us. Yeah. And we're supposed to read that as like, hey, that's unfair for her to say. Well, I've seen so say many people say that. Yeah, because she says like, you made me feel so safe. And they're like, how dare she say that to him? Well, I was like, what? No, it's just like the way highlighting also, the way that he has kind of like- Indoctrinated her. Oper- well, like operated in this family in terms of like- being that savior figure. Yeah. Yeah. It's supposed to be like kind of a contradictory, um, statement instead of being like, how could she say that to him? I I've seen that take too, which is always weird to me. Um, yeah, I, I think, you know, like also with on your point about like the movie is not asking like, was Dover's character right in torturing Alex? Like, again, I think his character is more of a subversion in that way. And, um, it's mm-hmm. not asking like, what would you be capable of doing if your child was taken from you? I think it's more so focused on the, the movie, how someone could rationalize and like lead themselves to the edge of this kind of human, human capability for violence and cruelty when they feel out of control in their environment. And so, like you said, I think he feels pressure to support his family in that way. And there's also like this interesting, you know, contrast in the Dover's house and, and clothes, you know, um, for the characters compared to the Birch family during the Thanksgiving part of of the movie Mm -hmm. to show maybe possibly like the financial strain, um, with Dover and how he might feel 
Like he needs to keep his house in a very particular order, like giving his kids a, a strict worldview, like throughout this, right. About yeah. like what needs to be done. Um, we see it mostly with his son, but a little bit with Anna too, when we first enter the house. And also like, I think this idea of like the patriarch and like this idea of the contradiction within that, within that kind of role construct. Yeah. Construct is that he's also, it's also tied in with this like religious, um, imagery, but also kind of like sub notes of him listening to sermons on the radio in his car. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, so I think like the dogma is also like an interesting, um, connection with Dover's character full of contradictions leading him to like blow up in this way with Alex. Yeah. I also think it's an interesting, I mean, that was all really well said as a cap off to this character, but I I also think it's like an interesting audience provocation to be like, what are you, the audience willing to justify yeah, uh, seeing this character do so he can get his daughter back because Denis is basically arguing that American audiences for the past 25 years plus have been justifying so much terrorism and and in much larger and violence, macro yeah. ways and violence. And so like that's the more interesting idea uh, about the movie. Like what you're saying, that's why it's not an ethical dilemma film and why it's a lot deeper than that. I uh, I wanted to ask you a question about the deer. Okay. And all over Do- Dover's home. So the movie starts off with, with Dover uh, 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 saying grace, and I, I believe, and then killing the deer. Yeah, when you said that, I was like, I don't know. He's saying some I'm, I'm sort pretty of... Sure. Okay. And, uh, and the movie also then shows a home, their home, the Dover's home, full of portraits of deer everywhere. Yeah. In the background. Yeah, I noticed kind that. Kind of the periphery watch. of shots. Even when like Loki is there, if you look in the living room, there's like pictures of deer, more than there are kids uh, or family pictures. Yeah. And... If you go to the Joneses' home, the Holly Jones and Alex Jones home, there's just pictures of kids everywhere. Oh, really? Yeah. Of, I only of, noticed the it like, seems to be their kids, statue. but also Alex. But we oh, can okay. maybe assume there are other photos of other children hmm. going across their home. And I think that religious extremism that Denis is commenting on of what you're willing to justify through dogma is fascinating when you parallel those two characters, the Holly Jones character and the Keller Dover. Yeah. Because yeah. obviously, like the comment of the parallel of Keller Dover using religion as a way to justify murdering that deer. And then the parallel of Holly uh, using religion and trying to turn people into demons because of losing her child to like Mm -hmm. justify taking children and murdering them is not like a equal parallel morally, but it is a fascinating parallel to show the ways that people rationalize their decisions. Like Kelsey was saying earlier, um, when those decisions have to do with other people's fate yeah. or animals well, in this it's case. Obviously like a very clear um, direction of Denis to show the deer in the back of the car, right? And like start off with a shot. That was a part of my extra credits. It's a great shot. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's like, I mean, it's very pointed, you know? Yeah, the deer in the back of Dover's car on the way, you know, to his house. And then later in the movie, his kids his are, kids are in, in the car. back of an yeah, RV. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's just great filmmaking to me and not cheesy, but I can read someone thinking that's corny mm-hmm. before we move on to detective Loki, who I think is the kind of like backbone of this movie. Yeah. I want to talk about Jackman's performance Okay, yeah, because he is insane in this movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And around 2013, he's known as being like charismatic and volatile in the Wolverine performance, which is why Villeneuve cast him. He wanted someone that the audience was familiar with as being this kind of actor that they admire. Um, and then turn him into this like powerless libertarian father. But I think the reason I want to just credit his performance, because I don't know if people know this, but a lot of critics and audience members, I think on from again, anecdotal, but like from what I've seen online seem to be kind of critical of his one tone 
performance. Yeah. Okay. Uh, they feel like overacting. Yeah. And theatrical, which is like, I think it's totally fair because you've seen, you know, we've all seen Hugh Jackman in theatrical performances. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's a like stage actor. Yeah. But him being one tone, like I know men like this <laughs> in real life. Yeah. And so like men in real life like this are one tone. <laughs> and so like to me, this performance is one of his best, if not his best performance, <laughs> because it's hard to capture like just this like dead face, singular energy. Yeah. yeah. Been through shit now making other people go through shit <laughs> face. Like he's perfected that. Anyways, I just wanted to shout him out because yeah. I don't think he gets enough support for this. I'm going to talk a little bit more about him in my extra credits. Ooh, exciting. Uh, okay. Detective Loki. So compared to Dover, Loki is sort of equally haunted by his past traumas, mm-hmm. I'd say, uh, but sort of like the inverse in terms of his actions, because even though Loki is a loner with some ambiguous morals, he's still like an obsessive character. Yeah. But he's not obsessive in the way Dover is. Like Loki is searching for ways. I guess they are kind of similar in the same way. They're they're both searching to find order in chaos and like looking for yeah. a chaotic order of sorts. And he's on like Loki is this like almost divine mission as a cop to like shed himself of all individuality and identity mm-hmm. and like give himself up to this greater good optimistic approach of trying to right the wrongs of the world around him while also working within a broken law enforcement institution. Mm -hmm. So that kind of like hypocrisy and contradiction really works for the character who already is kind of like self-hating slash seems to be like previously before his job self-destructive based on his like appearance. And he like also Gyllenhaal does this great quiet, moody, physical uh, idiosyncrasy thing where mm-hmm. he just has created a whole character off the page. Yeah. And apparently like um, Aaron Gazkowski's script doesn't show any of this uh, character, what we see on screen on the page. And like, I remember reading the script years ago and I remember thinking, wow, what Jake Gyllenhaal does with this role is just like nowhere here on, on paper. And so it is actually pretty incredible that they let him have this much leeway, mm-hmm. but I'm assuming that's why like, I don't know if we've talked about this, but Christian Bale was supposed to be in this movie Whoa. with Leonardo DiCaprio. Who was supposed to be who? I think Christian Bale was supposed to be Jake and Leo. Okay. Wait, no. Leo, Christian was supposed to Leo be Hugh. Leo was the cop. Leo was the cop. Interesting. Yeah. Because departed. I mean, Leo has been attached <laughs> to a lot of projects, but I know Christian Bale definitely was supposed to be on this movie and he was supposed to be one of these characters. Huh. So, and I, that is the person I think about when I think about this performance is Christian Bale. That kind of exaggerated but believable performance, a little yeah. absurd, but like, plays it straight enough where you believe them. Yeah, yeah. They don't have to say anything else. <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah. But I, so I do love the performance. I think it's a really smart, I think, I think the character is like almost like a mysterious robot and kind of like Loki's almost like elusive. And, and I know that's kind of funny because Loki, but also mm-hmm. like he is elusive almost as much as the mysteries of the film. So every time you're given a clue to where the daughters might be, you're also kind of wondering who the hell is detective Loki? Like, who is this yeah. guy that's kind of alluring on screen and like hypnotic in a way? Um, and well, then and then the Freemason stuff and the symbolism too. Uh, well, I mean, like alluring in a sense of like he feels like this like void, right? Like he feels like this kind of like yeah. empty figure, but you know that he just is like kind of jaded in a sense. So um, with a large backstory. Yeah, that we well, really that was like for. one of my questions. Maybe it's just an unanswerable question, but. I was wondering with his like tattoos and um, obviously like he, you know, it is uh, he, he talks about how he grew up um, in the institution of religion. Um, and I'm assuming went through a, a period where he would, you know, identify as religious. Mm-hmm. Uh, is he 
religious well, now? I don't think so. The, free, the Freemason ring, like Freemasons don't fuck around. That's like a whole other world. And so like I, the other religious symb- uh, symbolism, like the cross on the finger, like that says that he's maybe gone through a journey of like being a devout religious person. Wait, he had a ring to, on? To them being like a fundamentalist. Yeah, he did. He had a Freemason ring on. Wow, I've never noticed that. Yeah. Huh. Uh, well, okay. So here's, I used to think that he was just like a kind of like, uh, agnostic kind of figure yeah but re-watching it again i did catch something and like doing notes and prep which was that he i think at one point he's walking dover through the house that dover has alex in okay yeah, yeah like his old the, his father's apartment yeah. buildings yeah yeah dover's like oh shit loki's here and then acts like he's drunk or whatever and then mm-hmm. loki and him walk through the house and then at one point i think um well no that was a, that's a different that's time. the scene I'm talking about. But yeah, but yeah, I understand. He there's a I'm talking point. about the end of the movie. Alex yeah. is in the shower. <laughs> yes. Loki is looking for Alex. He thinks Dover has Alex, but Dover's trying to like and he has create to this illusion that he's drunk. And he has to leave. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so uh Detective Loki is uh is talking to Jackman uh Dover and is saying, Hey, I saw all the shit in your basement at home. Yeah. Your wife walked me through the house. Mm-hmm. Uh what's up with that? And I think Dover says something to the extent of like pray for the work, you know, you know, man, like pray for the best prepare for the worst. Yeah. And, uh, interestingly, detective Loki responds, at least we can agree on one thing. And huh. I was like, okay, so. And he, like, oh, and he says that at the end of the movie too, to the people who are excavating. He does the, say that he responds property. to yeah. almost like, you know, Dover became his, like his friend or something. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like a weird figure that, that he respects yeah. or He'd something. Like, Just let me do my, what I need to do. Um, I do think he respects Dover. I think that's an interesting, like neither of these characters. I, don't know, respect, I think he understands. Yeah, but Loki is I not a protagonist. Okay, figure. but I don't think he respects Dover. I actually disagree. By the end because, of the film? Yeah, because I think like at the end of the film, we have that really interesting sequence where um the wife played by what's her name again? Um uh sorry, I'm not being helpful here. Maria Bella. Yeah, Maria Bella. Who plays Grace Dover, right? She like is talking to Loki. And she makes a really clear point. She's like, he's a good man. Like yeah. he did everything he could to get her back. And I wouldn't change it. We're going to get to that because yeah. like that, because you know, just because her daughter came back to her, like she's justifying what her you know husband did. And obviously like he's missing. So there's a lot of different like factors that, that come into that, like rationalization, but mm-hmm. uh, Loki doesn't say anything back. Right. <laughs> he's just like blankly staring at her when she's like, he's he is pissed a, off. He is a good man. Yeah. But I don't necessarily, I think he, I, I think he understands Hugh Jackman. I don't think he respects him. Fair enough. Well, I mean, there, so the reason I think this is also because Dover and detective Loki are kind of like foils. And then I think later on we find that actually interestingly, um, Keller Dover and Holly Jones are actually foils like sneakily, but I think like, you know, we are introduced to two characters, um, detective Loki and, uh, Keller Dover. I don't know why I'm like having a hard time with all their names. Because Keller Dover is a terrible name. <laughs> like, and yeah. so is Detective Loki. They're terrible names. <laughs> they are terrible character names. So anyway, so, um, but visually we get a really clear. So like, is Holly Jones. Like, what the yeah. fuck? Are these like the names of like, yeah, these are American names. They really stand know. out. I think it's because everyone's saying everyone's full name in the movie. <laughs> yeah, but. Okay. But the reason why I think it's uh, visually really successful to set us up with kind of the juxtaposition of 
Keller Dover and Detective Loki is that we have the at the first uh, you know couple scenes of the movie right Hugh Jackman finds out like his daughters were taken he is mm-hmm. frantic like running through the neighborhood and uh, grabs the phone from his son and says like tell me everything you know he's calling the cops like mm-hmm. so there's a really high intensity Urgency. around yeah that moment like in the rain right and then we cut immediately on Thanksgiving um, to uh, Hall, yeah. yeah. Uh, to Hall, like sitting alone on duty, eating in an empty restaurant. And yeah. I just think like visually to set up character, it was so great. And cause we have all that built up tension, like you're saying with Keller and Franklin searching for Anna and joy. And then that immediate cut to a character who like just seems so jaded, but so focused. Um, I think it's just like, I, I just thought it was like really successful. And it's one of my favorite like cut sequences in the movie. So the movie is all about parallels, right? Like yeah. Holly uh, Jones. <laughs> uh, so Holly, whatever the, the killer in the movie yeah. and then Dover, they are the, they are the parallels. They are both trying to justify yeah. through religion, yeah. terrible actions. Yeah. And I, uh, I think that detective Loki is fascinating because his parallel is more to me with the children. Yeah. Okay. They, exactly. They have, so, but, but I'm saying that like, it's a subversion yeah. of having that cut of like, Oh, we're comparing these two characters no, and their totally. ideologies. And then later on you're like, Oh, so actually impressive. Holly and, and Keller Dover, yeah. like actually the, the comparisons, but, but I think yeah. you're right. And, and the reason why is also, um, maybe we'll talk about this scene towards the, the end of the movie, but it's, um, right. When, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal sees like the kids that like that performance, of him seeing himself in those children, right? It's implied that he was sexually abused in the boy's mm-hmm. home by religious figures growing up when he goes to the, the house and finds the dead body in the basement. Mm-hmm. And so I just think that like the, I, I think you're, you're right in that idea in terms of like parallels. Um, and, yeah. and there's one more scene I want to talk about with Loki and, um, and Keller, but I'll, I'll wait. Well, we could talk about it now. I was going to say this is my favorite Jake Gyllenhaal performance of all time. Oh, wow. Yeah, and I think it's yeah. right above Nightcrawler and Zodiac for me. And I think there's so many good scenes to point to, but a lot of them are with Hugh Jackman, even if they're Zodiac exaggerated. So, long. so if you want to talk, I mean, I'm assuming you're talking about the car scene. I'm talking about the car scene. Yeah, yeah I mean, let's talk <laughs> yeah. about it. Like when he, when Hugh Jackman says every day, she's wondering why I'm not there. Not you. When he says not that, you, me. me. Yeah. And uh, every day like that. Yeah. And and then Joan Hall, uh, you know, he's the reason that he made, you know, Dover blow up because he said, he said, I fucking know. Like, I know it's yeah, past yeah. six days. Like, yeah. you don't have to tell me because I mean, Joan Hall wears on his face that he does. You do understand that he probably was a tortured child and he's trying to save tortured children. Mm-hmm. And like, that is like his mission is like almost divine mission. The way he sees it, what we can, you know, infer from what the screen is giving us. But what's interesting about this scene is like Jake Joan Hall's like, Hey, 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 it gives him like, <laughs> he gives him like eight haze, like Mr. Dover, like that whole thing. Do you like that scene or do you think it's a little bit much? I love that scene. Okay, great. <laughs> I love that scene. Get in the car. Why are you following me? Where are you going just now? Part of the liquor store. I have a bottle of liquor. You're the shit hot detective. Work it out. Action man before that. 
We were uh, walking in the opposite direction across the parking lot towards Campella Street. I haven't had a drink in nine and a half years. I figured if I walked around the parking lot for a while, by the time they opened, I'd stop wanting it that bad. And then, uh, then I saw you. Sort of helped me make up my mind. There's a bag of lye in your basement. It's half empty. Your wife thinks you've been helping us. We both know that's not true. I used the lie to bury our dog last year. And helping the cops sounds better than I've been driving aimlessly in my truck because I don't know what the fuck else to do. Is that what we doing last Saturday night? Probably. Am I a suspect? I don't know. I'm only asking you. I'm only asking because you assaulted a man who's now missing. I heard about him. What happened to him? Thought you had him under surveillance. I'm, I'm, I'm going to assume that you're asking me because you have no idea. Yo, I didn't think it was something I could get away with. It's not. Yo, well, it couldn't be that he skipped down because the asshole was guilty. Or it couldn't be that, right? Because that would mean it would be your fault, right? Mr. Dover. Mr. Dover. What? You need to take care of yourself and your wife. That's, That's the cool. best thing you can do right now. That little girl is going to need you when she comes home. Kid's gone for more than a week. Have half as good a chance of being found. And after a month, almost none are not alive. All right? So forgive me for doing everything I can. No one. It hasn't been a fucking week. You're right. Day it hasn't fucking been a week. six. Day six. And every day, she's wondering why I'm not there to fucking rescue her. Do you understand that? Right. Me, not you, not you, but me, every day. All right. So forgive me for not going home to have a good night's rest. Now why didn't you look for my fucking daughter rather than fucking... Hey, 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 hey. Don't hey, follow hey, me. Hey, hey, Mr. Dole. I it's love so iconic. Yeah. All of their scenes together. I love when they're first in the house together. Um, and he's like, he like, you know, Hugh Jackman blows up and then yeah. immediately pulls it back and is like, cr like crying and just obviously like uh, understandably oh like God. so emotionally yeah. um, raw. Right. And, and Jake Dillenhall, like his character also understands that. And he's like, I understand what you're saying. I understand what you're saying. But then we have like a really like kind of funny cut right after that of uh, Dover running out to tell Loki, like, you better keep He's him. Like, shit. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, shit. But, like, it's like you, you do uh, two people's point of, like, you know, kind of psychologizing the characters. Like, you do have an understanding and empathy um, for, like, Loki and Dover. So, I'm about to make a comparison here. I'm not comparing law enforcement. In those senses. I'm, I, I don't want to compare law enforcement education because I think one institution has a lot more power and is a lot more broken, which mm. is obviously law enforcement. That's a difficult conversation. But I wanted to bring up the way that Detective Loki treats having to have conversations with, like, like the way that he is spoken to as, like, a public civil servant kind of figure yeah. in this movie, regardless of how absurd it is and, like, how unrealistic it is of, mm -hmm. of these people really existing or not, I find it to be a really interesting parallel to the way that teachers are not represented in movies, though I think they should be, and the ways that they're kind of, like, talked down to and, like, ordered by everyone because they are 
public servants, quote mm-hmm. unquote. And so I, I just wanted to mention that because when Dover does walk to the car after Loki leaves his house and goes shit, that moment felt was so weirdly relatable, even though yeah. we nothing to do with that institution. I it's just felt fascinating. the same way. And I think it's really just because like, if you were to make an accurate like teacher movie, right, you would have a lot of like tragic um, like things happening like within people's lives, within mm-hmm. a school and in, in a broken kind of institution. But then at the same time, you have like people um, kind of having to go through this like weird bureaucratic yeah. like red tape things and like also deal with like really like petty things too or things where basically like people are are um completely like dismissing the the person and it's like um, immediately like going i don't know it's it's, yeah. it's a way that like he was talked to not necessarily the situation that was the same but there is yeah. a weird like um strange i guess like uh contradiction of this like kind of idea of these all of these things existing in one place where like someone is literally like going to do their job yet and there's so there's like mundane things involved with that in yeah. terms of like dynamics between people and also like overstepping kind of boundaries yeah. um in terms of like you know, like if I get like a parent email or something and it's like completely wild or, you know what I mean? It's like, so like th- at those the very least. Yeah. yeah. So like the minimum. Yeah. So like those kind of things where it's like, Oh, like people think it's like appropriate to like push this like certain boundary. That That's like the only reason I saw like a teacher experience, like within that, uh, interaction. Yeah. Explorations of public workers in movies is fascinating because the the populace of a country that is democratic feels that they have a certain amount of ownership over uh, public workers so that's yeah. what i found fascinating about this dichotomy between dover and loki yes yeah. is that dover's kind of like you work for that's me i'm telling you what it, to yeah. do yeah. and you know he's very libertarian he doesn't outwardly say it but you can feel it through his bones yeah. and the way he expresses himself but i love what you said about the bureaucratic stuff because one of my favorite relationships in this movie i don't want to leave the car yet if you're not ready to leave but i just wanted to mention the, the captain and Detective Loki. I already left the car. I'm okay. ready. Let's talk about the captain and Detective Loki. The way that Loki multiple times in this movie tells the captain, he's like, I just had one fucking thing I need you to do. Just one fucking thing. And if you would have done that, all this would have been solved. And like at first, the beginning of the movie, the, the detective is like, they're kind of like, you know, giving shit to each other. And then in the middle of the movie, when Alex actually goes missing, I think, uh-huh. or, or no, when Alex says, you know, to Dover, They didn't cry until I left them. They didn't cry. Thank you. They didn't cry until I left them. And then when Dover comes in to tell Loki and the captain that and then leaves, and that's when (laughs) uh, just Detective Loki gives his captain shit. I just really liked that. I like their dynamic too. I love that dynamic. Yeah. So (laughs) because they're, yeah. Yeah. There's Um, like a mutual respect, but like they both know they're in shit, like, and they're having to work within it. And so they're kind of like, come on, man, just like the small things. I just need you to do the small things. I just like that. I, um, can we talk about Alex's character? Yeah, let's do now, it. Yeah. So I have seen like really interesting interpretations of Alex's character. Also, like even in terms of how people interpreted what the scene you were just talking about of him telling Dover, they didn't cry until I left them. And so I, I guess like, so with Alex, right? Alex Jones, who uh, is played by Paul Dano mm-hmm. and that's Holly Jones's like not son. He, she kidnapped him. Basically, um, a vic- he's a victim. But yeah. has like has been essentially raised by by her or living in her house. Right. Yeah. Um, but like, yeah, captured. Yeah. But anyway, so I've seen people like the reason I'm making that distinction is because I've seen people say that Alex is an accomplice to Holly as a kidnapper. Interesting. And I like, I've never read it like that. Yeah. I've, I, I mean, I didn't see it like that either. So I was just like surprised to see that because, um, I think that, you know, that is a very, again, like 
either or or like black or and white like way to look at the movie right because mm-hmm. i think denis is like less interested in the morality of alex and like far more interested in how alex has been impacted by his situation and his environment right like similar to the snake guy like david um i hope i'm saying his name right but Del Smalshian. yes thank you yeah. um also known as polka dot guy from suicide squad and also knows that one guy from also blade runner 2049 also knows that one guy from boogeyman who gets boogeyman yeah <laughs> um and also like also though going off of this situation of how someone's impacted by their environment um like Keller and Loki too right like he he's interested in asking that question and so Alex specifically like with that that question of how you're impacted by your environment like he is psychologically in the frame of mind from when he was abducted as a child like that's what we're supposed to understand as the audience because he parks his rv outside of the house where he was taken mm-hmm. and so he can't answer keller's questions not because he doesn't want to right um it's because he has a history of abuse and so i i was just fa- the only reason i'm saying this and maybe people like all saw this the same way but i saw a lot in research for this movie saw a lot of people talking about how like Alex was an accomplice. Why wouldn't Alex just like answer his language? Yeah. Answer his questions. And I was like, Alex is like a survivor of abuse, right? Like, um, so cause I saw the reason I'm bringing it up with that scene is I also saw, um, like a collection of, of people saying that like Alex was playing with Keller, like toying with him when he said they didn't cry until I left him. And I was like, no, like Alex is, like I don't, I was not intentionally trying to cause Keller pain, and um, it like I, I don't know. I just thought it was strange. Uh, well, because it's weird because yeah, go he ahead. was kidnapped. Yeah, just like the girls, and and the also something interesting that I I saw. Um, and I'm not trying, literally not trying to straw man. I saw like this a lot, so I was just like curious because I never saw it this way when he chokes the dog. Right, um, yeah. people were like, oh well, Alex is violent. He like is a part of this this mm-hmm. uh what his what his uh aunt is doing or whatever you know holly jones they're also doing. playing with audiences stereotypes of people that are dealing with like mental health struggles too yeah so, but like, but like the dog in that way rem- removing like moral reactions to alex yeah. and just observing alex right like he was choking his aunt's dog because he has anger toward i'm, I'm saying aunt but you know what i mean his kidnapper like yeah. holly he's um he's choking that dog because he has anger towards her and has no power in that situation good point and he wanted yeah. to play with the kids not to be in like a accomplice to a kidnapping but because of uh what were what is suggested is like his psychological state um because of growing up in he was an abducted child. And mm-hmm. so we can only assume kind of the trauma um, and abuse that Holly and like maze man. Right. Um, maze man. Maze man. Ma- <laughs> Do we get a name? Do we ever get a, name? a villain name? <laughs> That's so terrifying. But it's just, uh, it's just Villeneuve trying to like not asking any questions about forgiveness. He's just like showing a bleak reality. Well, right? I think Villeneuve totally. That was a great breakdown of Alex because I honestly, I'd never read the dog I never read into the dog. So I, that's a really fascinating thought that he was, that's the only way he could like injure like. Yeah. His, he has Holly. Yeah. Captor. I'm just saying yeah. aunt because that's like literally sure. what is said throughout the whole movie. So it's in my mind, but obviously yes. His so chapter. Villeneuve's films. I can't explain this fully because I would spoil his other movies, but Villeneuve doesn't like this idea of like traumatic cycles continuing forever. Mm. He believes there is like some kind of possibilism in the world, some kind of free will where you can kind mm. of pull yourself out of a, a toxic cycle and so I think he was playing in this Alex role as somebody who is like 
emotionally troubled because of being a victim. I do think Villeneuve is trying to play with this idea, this problematic expectation that the audience has that this person on screen that is dealing with mental health struggles or disabilities might have psychotic tendencies, which is a stereotype that has been like littered throughout pop culture and movies throughout ever since movies have existed. Mm -hmm. And I think it was really smart and subversive to like ultimately reveal that Alex is a victim and not the aggressor. Yeah. And I think that was like his way to kind of get his nub. Dover has been torturing this whole time. Exactly. Yeah. And I think the audience in a similar way was kind of like, yeah, maybe you should torture him because he seems like he knows something. Yeah. And so I think Villeneuve just again, just toying, just poking a little bit at the audience of being like, why do you want this to happen? Do you have prejudice? Like, I think that Mm. again, not, it's not given enough credit, but that's a great reading of Alex. And also just like, shout out Paul Dano. You've had a tough run of it, a tough go of it in terms of roles, like the Batman, there will be blood. Jesus Christ, just getting bullied (laughs) back and forth. (laughs) That's so true. Oh my God. There will be blood one is wild. Yeah. Daniel Day-Lewis. He's getting his milkshake drink by everyone (laughs) in Hollywood. I I think, um, Uh, (laughs) if you never saw there would be blood, you'd be like, what? What? Um, but so I think also, yeah, like, well, that's fascinating because I haven't done as much prep in terms of watching Denise interviews, but I view like this movie in particular more of a focus on like the material social factors that influence a person's behavior. But that's so interesting uh, to hear him talk about the idea of like free will, because I just see this like more as a movie that is exploring the kind of more more of an observational lens on institutions rather and, and, and tricking the audience into judgment. He's a deeply romantic, sentimental person. I mean, arrival, think about the end of that movie and like what Amy Adams choices as a, mm. as a parent, I guess that's that true. Movie. think yeah. about Blade Runner and the idea of what free will means to that character. Ryan Gosling's playing like he is, and I'm assuming what if he's going to do with Chalamet. I'm a replicant. Yeah. Does okay. that was the, a great, that was like an, a plus joke. That was great. Uh, <laughs> I, I, what I was going to say, I was going to make some Timothy Chalamet comment. Never mind. Okay. Uh, but um, yeah, I just think Denis is, is, is interested in the way that we kind of exploit this idea of traumatic cycles. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. It's it, he's an interesting filmmaker when it comes to that. Like I think Jordan Peele is an interesting uh, filmmaker too, to, to pair like juxtapose next to Denis because Jordan Peele, believes in like how toxic cycles repeat themselves. That's like a thing in all of his movies. Mm -hmm. Um, And so like Denis trying to fight back against that idea is maybe a little optimistic and some of his movies isn't super successful and and people can go watch those movies if you haven't seen them. But um, I think it's effective in prisoners, the most effective at least. Yeah. That's so interesting. I mean, I, I think that's also like why we love Jordan Peele so much, right? Yeah, Cause like, we probably fall more on that spectrum, yeah. which is like, we're a little bit more environmental determinism headed where we're kind of like whatever is being set at a young age is going to repeat until mm-hmm. like any kind of stable institution can help support that group. Yeah. And so like that's, I mean, we're also, we work in institutions. So yeah. like, it's kind of hard not to, you know, yeah. Denis ble- believing in free will to this extent is kind of interesting, but I, I don't, you know, us let's, personally. Let's whatever. talk about um about Holly Jones just because we're almost at two hours here. <laughs> okay. I mean, it's been a good... I mean, we've done no, three hours. No, I've been having a lot pods. of fun. Yeah. I'm just saying. <laughs> um, so, wait. Okay. So, yeah, we still have it. like Holly Jones. I want to talk a little bit about the the families and then I think we can do our extra credits. Sure. Uh, so, Holly Jones. Good performance? Bad performance? Melissa Leo? I, I like her actor in certain scenes. Like... I, I think she's an Oscar winning actress. Yeah. Like she's, she is fantastic. in a lot of the work I've seen her in, but I think in this movie, it feels a little bit like 
I don't know if it's necessarily her Playing fault. A bit? Yeah, it's more so like it's sometimes like at the end when she tells him to like, like a caricature get in the of hole, an old woman. If I like laugh. Kelsey like, laughed out loud. I was like <laughs> SNL skit. It reminded me of Kate McKinnon. Yeah, it feels like it, yeah, exactly. Okay, it feels like like funny, but may, maybe it's just because of the makeup and like kind of the yeah. size comparison and kind of cartoonish like vibe with her and Jackman at the end there that made me like laugh, even though I I'm terrified by that situation. And, you know, it, and at the end, this was the only time where I was like, Hugh, just like charge her. What are you doing? You know, like his, she has the gun. Oh, in the charge her, like run at, like literally yeah. tackle her. And then I realized, Oh That's no, how that this would movie be ended. very stupid because <laughs> like this woman knows how to use a gun. Okay. She like shot Jake G in the Absolutely. head from a pretty good distance at like an angle where she was hidden. A quick right? turnaround too. She, she's a good marksman. Yeah. Uh, so my strategy was not the one to, to go with, but I think, I don't know. There was just some sort of, like, I do like the idea of men in the crowd being like, I would have charged. Her. Yeah. yeah I, I would have done this. Um, but, but what do you think about that? Because like, why, why did he put the handcuffs on? Like why? Did, I, I mean, obviously he was at gunpoint, but like, I mean, there these are deeply religious he, like, wanted figure. to see his daughter. Deeply, or? A, I think it's, he's a deeply religious figure. He wants forgiveness. Okay. He wants forgiveness and he wants to see his daughter. He wants to be forgiven for not protecting her. That's like the whole theme of the movie. He became a God, a patriarch okay, so he, of his household. He promised his family that he would protect them. He lost his daughter. He's now being like, I view it as like kind of being selfish at the end of the movie. Well, is he like punishing himself I don't, or is he punishing himself? But I also think he wants his last, like, he wants his daughter to see him. Oh, he okay. wants that kind of forgiveness. Ah. He feels guilty. I think he feels like he has committed the ultimate sin, which is not protecting his his family. Huh. Okay. So I, I, that's how I read it from the religious lens of like feeling like he is playing God of his household. Yeah. Also, this was the first time that when I was watching the movie, I realized when she like had that towel over her hand that she had a gun in her hand and also that she had a gun when he first went earlier. To, yeah. yeah. It, it, when he first went to visit her or whatever, talk to her, um, she to find out about Alex and yeah. she had her hand like on her gun the whole time. She also says when detective Loki comes over and asks Alex, Hey, did you say something to Dover in the parking lot? Oh, and yeah. Holly wouldn't leave the room. And yeah. he was like, I need to talk to Alex alone. She gets up and she puts her hand in her pocket and she says to Alex, oh, yeah. I'll be in the other room. You're right. And I'm like, so oh she shit. Has, yeah. And that's why when Detective Loki is like, you don't want to see your, you know, your aunt go away. And then Alex is kind of like, <laughs> he's like, I don't yeah, mean to laugh, but he's like straight face. And you're like, you know, he doesn't know if he should answer. Like, I kind of wouldn't mind seeing my yeah. aunt go away. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. Th I mean, that was I, fascinating because I didn't, I did not notice that. Like, I obviously like should have because she has a towel over him, but she was like, I got, I burned my hand and yeah. he, I got a, what did she say? Like a boo-boo or something. Yeah. I was like, believable. I get it. <laughs> but she had a gun. Anyway, I think. I think it's a deceptive performance yeah. sometimes, but it's just not all that convincing. Yeah. I do feel bad. I do think it's a I lot of a, probably the direction. I think it's maybe like a makeup thing for me too. Like if it's a she lot feels makeup. cartoonish. I think, okay. So, but I ultimately though, I am a very afraid of her. Okay. So like the her character performance is, I like, yeah, but her performance is good in, in that. I, like I don't suspect so. her yeah. and I'm, and I'm a little terrified of her. I think the character though is what fascinates me. The okay. idea, the idea of a radicalizing God fearing person so is fascinating. This is also what I missed until our most recent viewing. Um, I, you can tell, I guess I haven't watched it as carefully as I should have, but, um, I missed the idea that she is still religious at the end. So yeah. I thought like every time I had watched it, that she had like lost her faith and therefore was waging a war on God. But, um, 
when she says she's waging a war on God and she's trying to create demons like Hugh Jackman, mm-hmm. um, in order to wage a war with someone, you like have to believe they exist. And so she's trying to make people lose their faith to get back at God because yeah. she thinks that God took her child from her um, when her child died from cancer. And so she's trying to inflict harm on God, like through this war. And I just never caught that she was religious. So Alex end. Jones and a little bit lesser than with Bob Taylor because his character is a little bit more complicated, but we'll just still call him a victim. They're both supposed to represent like Bob kinda, Taylor's Bob Taylor's the Del Smalshian character. Snake man. Snake man. Okay. Uh, yeah. They're both sort of supposed to represent in this post nine 11 allegory lens supposed to represent like falsely persecuted Muslims. Like that's what's going on in this, in this lens of being tortured people and then being tortured by this extremist, which is Holly Jones and then Keller Dover. They're both extremists. Holly Jones is, is an extremist of trying to wage war against God. And then uh, uh, Keller Dover is an extremist in trying to rationalize violence in order to be God of his household. Mm. And like that, that is the most complicated part of this movie. Again, that post 9-11 lens. And I, I mean, if people can't tell, that is going to be my extra credits. I just think that's a really kind of hard thing to do in a blockbuster like this, to have that kind of that American interrogation at the heart of a movie like this is really difficult, but I think it's so successful. And one of the reasons it's successful is because of the extremism of Holly Jones, like what she's trying to do. And I agree. I didn't really get into multiple watches that she is a God fearing person Mm. that is just trying to radicalize as much people as possible. When she says demons, she means radicalize. She wants to turn people into like committing. She wants to make people commit sin. Like that's basically what she's trying to do. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, again, writing wise, that's, that comes from a script. It's just great screenwriting. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, I, I also, I know a lot of, well, maybe not a lot, but I have just seen criticism of like, well, I, I called it at the beginning. Like I did not call it at the beginning. Like I, I think I liked the, the subtle maze. It was big enough, the maze picture, you Mm -hmm. know, um, or necklace. And then seeing that maze, uh, necklace also on the guy who was dead in the basement. So that is her husband. And then him seeing it when he is like, uh, Loki seeing it at like the last moment, like why didn't I put this together? Well, he actually, so they actually, so the, when I figured it out, when I saw it, that's why my friend said it in the theater, cause he, yeah. I mean, we're college kids. So yeah. he was just being annoying <laughs> in the middle of a movie, which is, I would be so pissed if someone did it at the end of a film today. Uh, but the reason that the, the, the way you can tell the movie, uh, what's going to happen in the movie. We by would the, laugh if someone was like, I called it. I guess it is funny. I go, but, like, congratulations. But like, <laughs> like 30 minutes in after he finds the, uh, what do you call him? The maze man in yeah. the priest's basement. Yeah. Um, and you see the maze uh, on his necklace. Mm-hmm. Uh, Loki goes to investigate Alex's house either earlier or later in the film. But when he investigates his house with earlier Holly Jones, the yeah. there's a photo of uh, her husband, the yeah. snake man. But he's wearing the not maze. the snake man, the maze. Sorry, man. the maze man, the same man. <laughs> he's wearing the maze in the photo in yes. front of the RV. Yeah, and then you're just supposed to connect there that he has been taking kids, and then you just kind of figure out because Holly's creepy as shit that like she is was helping, she was an accomplice, exactly. or, or if not the like lead person. Exactly. Yeah. Well, so I think that's like the you know I'm trying to go back to the first time I watched it. That's like the ultimate twist. You think it's just her husband, and then you realize it's actually her too. Yeah. Um. So you're like unsuspecting of her. And, but I, and then there's that twist because he finds out when he, you know, gets upset and like, um, thinks that the girls are killed. Mm -hmm. Right. And so he, uh, you know, wipes everything off of his desk and then he sees that, that medallion, the maze medallion. And then we cut right to Hugh Jackman being like, Oh, you got a, a, uh, door 
problem. And he goes yeah. over to, <laughs> to Holly Jones's house and you're like, Oh wow. Okay. It's about to like go down. Yeah. And we get that kind of like twist of she is involved in this, which w- was shocking for me the first time I watched it. I think, um, also with like Loki's character, uh, Hall's character, it's yeah. interesting. Um, we already kind of talked about this, but the idea that he like didn't co- connect those clues or the maze medallion because mm-hmm. um, of what he had gone through and he is like still dealing with his trauma. That's a good point in terms of like yeah. the father at, at, with the house. That so he's, he's kind of clouded. The, so- I don't know what actually what religious standing the guy was sure whatever when bob taylor steals his gun when he's being interrogated that's a good example of like loki being out of it at that point he seems like he hasn't slept in six or seven nights um also last thing about loki before we move on to the last few characters and then get to our extra credits uh there is a there the tension for loki is set at the beginning of the movie and i forgot to mention this when he goes to the dover's home for the first time to talk about anna uh he actually goes Mm -hmm. to the birch's home for the first time if you remember, like the first home he visits after the girls have been abducted is the Birch's home. And Viola Davis is like, my husband gave you a terrible photo. This is the, oh, this is yeah. the good photo. Yeah. I thought that was a cool scene. But then he goes to the Dover's house. Well, really quick. When we're, I think it's that scene when we're at the Birch's, like all the Thanksgiving food is still on the table, which is a great touch. It's a great shot. Um, But when he goes to the Dover's house, when he's sitting on the couch next to uh Mrs. Dover, Grace, yeah. Grace, she uh, says, your captain said you solved every case you've ever been assigned. Right. And Loki looks so fucking pissed. Yeah. And it really sets the tension for the whole movie, which yeah. he doesn't want to let this this family down. And so when Hugh Jackman later in the movie sees the photo of his daughter's sock and he points at the photo of his daughter's sock to Loki and he goes, you let this happen. Yeah. That, that was like a tension that was bubbling the whole mm-hmm. movie because it was like the only case he's never solved to, up until this point right. what, what, from what we've been told. Yeah. And when when Dover says that and Loki doesn't know that Dover has Alex, it just like, again, the layers emotionally are still really effective in this movie, not just thematically. Yeah. Oh, well, um, so that is actually like one of my extra credits. Okay. I think the, there were a few moments I was going to talk about that I cried on rewatch and that was one of them. I think just that emotional performance, like you're right. It was this bubbling tension between them throughout the movie. And then when he says like, you made this happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously like, he's just like passing off all the blame. Right? right. And guilt that he feels for not like what he thinks is like saving his daughter. Um, just and that- for bull and, and for torturing bowling. Oh my God. Yeah. Torturing Alex, the yeah. whole film. Yeah. And so when he says that he like does the point, right. It's like, a, I mean, he sort of like, he says it very sternly, but it's like, this what is basically like this climactic moment of like something that is really emotionally like uh tragic but like really subtle mm-hmm. and um so i think that that scene where he identifies the clothing is like also really emotional like he's he sees uh viola davis like come out when and her performance also makes me like cry We're gonna in that get moment to, too like yeah, the viola, identifying uh the the clothing and also like terrence howard too like when when uh like the other parents in the movie are like walking out of the room. It's so tragic. But then when Hugh Jackman goes into that room, he like basically like you see something if through his performance of like, I'm not going to see my child's clothing. Like I'm not, I'm going to like act like this is not going to happen, but also he's preparing himself for it too. Like it's a really, uh, like powerful, yeah. yeah. Um, performance there and just seeing, because then when he does see it, it's like a, 
a shock and like a, this like break. It's just a really emotional moment that made me cry to the audience too, because the first time you watch it, you haven't picked up yet that Bob Taylor dropped those socks when he was jumping out of the yeah. Dover's house, which we haven't talked about, but yeah. um, quickly Grace Dover. I just wanted to, to mention um, Maria Bella's performance. Cause I mm-hmm. think it's good. And I know she's, yeah. in a, she's bedridden for the entire film. And even though if this is one of listeners, only Denis films you've seen, uh, up until like 2013, I recommend watching some of his earlier work. Cause I know that like all the women in this movie really take a backseat to, to the two male yeah. leads. And I, but I think I don't think Denis it like, makes a, it makes sense in this movie with the patriarchal themes he's trying to explore. Yeah. But, the but I agree. Like I, making, yeah. I do wish there was a little bit more Maria Bello and Viola Davis. Yeah. I thought though she did a great job in showing in this way that she's kind of like isolated and alone mm-hmm. and kind of like, again, prisoner to Keller in a sense. And, uh, at least in as far as you can be prisoner to like a patriarch household. And I think the, the son too, Dylan Minnette's character, even though the performance isn't great, um, it's okay. The character is interesting. And, in, and, in, in, in as far as like him trying to let his dad get away with certain things until he literally blows up on him. Do you know who was supposed to be the son? Who? You don't know this? No. It's not going to sound original because we talk about this actor all the time. I've okay. mentioned him three times today. Skylar Jasondo. No, but Denis <laughs> liked the <laughs> Skylar would have been great. Denis liked the the uh, the performance so much in the casting session uh, for the son of Keller that he cast this. He casted someone else. This boy who tried out for Dylan Minnette's character in a future movie called Dune, and that person's Timothy Chalamet. No, was supposed to be Hugh Jackman's son. Okay. I, I don't, I don't, I can't see it. What? I think, you know, yeah, I can't. What see do you mean? It. Interstellar Casey Affleck's son or that, that made, or sorry, I, young Casey Affleck. Oh, that made, I guess wait, that's, was he young Casey Affleck? Yeah, yeah he yes, was, young, he was Casey. young Casey Affleck. He, he was, was great also, in that. um, played a similar character in don't look up. Yeah. Sort of. <laughs> um, well, I mean, as like I, a, as like a naive teenager. I, yeah. I just don't like, he comes off as more uh, like he is like complaining or something <laughs> Yeah. in, in a lot of his movies where he's like dad, like, or something, you know, in interstellar. I, okay. I, I think the I moodiness wanna, makes sense. He would distract me. Okay. Well, Dylan Minnette looks like a kid that I feel like I knew. So that makes it like, I like his look. Like yeah. He looks well, like the, somebody yeah, from the, that area. I feel like he, yeah, I feel like uh, he's a really believable actor in this movie. And I feel like Timmy gives me more like, Maybe it's his like his uh he's bones. He's, he's got like a private an aristocracy. School look, <laughs> yeah. For sure. Dune a trade Paul Atreides vibe. Totally. <laughs> uh I just wanted to mention again, just like the whole idea that the daughter knows how many days that she's lost the whistle, like the red whistle. Mm. She tells the birches how many like 120 something days or something like that. And then again, the son wants a car. He won't the dad won't let him yeah. buy it. He won't sell his own home. He's trying to keep his family trapped. I just wanted to mention that again. I just think it's a really smart theme. The birches, Viola wait, Davis. Wait, real quick. I just want to also say like Maria Bello, um, that scene at the end where she says like, he's a great man. I think that's like her best performance there, but she also does play like a really believable grieving mother in her small moments, like where she is really expressing that emotional pain. I agree that that end scene with the daughter and she waves to detective Loki. I mean, it's devastating. Yeah. Uh, but the Birches Viola Davis is great. I think the biggest problem with this movie is not more Viola Davis. And I know that, that can sound like like just like virtue signaling. Oh, I wish Viola Davis was more in this movie. But when she's in the movie, I feel like she like she is such a screen presence. Like when yeah. she's talking to Paul Dano in the bathroom, that whole scene is really felt. Yeah. And so when well, he like snaps back, yeah. it's a really chaotic moment. But she carries that scene. Yeah, I think 
like Terrence Howard does a really good job in terms of like the emotional performance he he gives like that he's allowed he to doesn't give, have yeah. like yeah exactly because he doesn't have like a monologue necessarily like he is reacting to um Hugh Jackman's character but I think he gives like a really emotional performance but you're right like when Viola Davis shows up to that apartment um that is like a really memorable scene and I and I think like in a way right they're like ta- they're they're kind of exploring this idea of like they're like a modern family yeah yeah but exactly she, she right like, like the- it's a it's a contrast role. Exactly. It's yeah. like a contrast from this like rigid patriarch savior that, that Dover's character is like representing and really believes in as an idea. And so like, if we were, if we could see like a little bit more Davis verse, uh, like a Hugh Jackman, like the characters, wow, right? Been sick. Like it's because you, you really feel like, no, Oh, okay, right. like people are, there's like tension and there's like power, like within this interaction. Um, so I think that's a totally like great scene. Maybe to, to point Denis, to, not to give him credit, of. but maybe he thought we were expecting that because I think the mm. turn of Viola Davis, her character is interesting because there's like an interesting choice to write the birches as a family that is like represents institutions too, because I don't know if you picked up on this, but Terrence Howard's character is a teacher. Oh yeah. He's a public school teacher. And, and Davis is a veterinarian. Right. And so they are both like uh caretakers of their community in a sense. And what's interesting is like Viola Davis's character is like telling her husband to stop taking the wooden planks off the shower. Well, that yeah, Alex so the birches in. are supposed to represent kind of like a, not in indifference, but like a middle class sort of like apathy towards like whatever needs to be done. Yep. Yeah. yeah. A, a great smart political comment. Yeah. Again, like I think the, the, uh, the kind of layers of different cultures and identities that again, feeding into this post nine 11, I, uh, message of the movie that were kind of justifying what the United States did post nine 11 is really smart to do it in this way where you have both two families living across the street from one one another with different socioeconomic statuses, different races, and just like completely different like circumstances, but are still kind of stuck in the same community are willing to justify violence if it means keeping their household stable. Yeah. It's more of like a, um, a American like undertone. Um, yeah. it, it's not necessarily like pointing specifically to like characters. It's more again, like what we were saying, it's like a subversion almost for like, pointing you to like the clues are leading you to a deeper institutional um, value or failure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, extra credits. Yeah. Okay. So we already kind of like talked about some of mine. Yeah. Um, I think for me, it was, I was really the like two moments that made me cry. I already said the one where um, the parents are identifying the clothing and the other one um, was when the, it was the last scene with Jake Gyllenhaal at the hospital mm-hmm. and the mom wheels in Anna and says, you know, I, I wanted, or Anna wanted to meet her hero mm-hmm. and Jake just like blank stares yeah. at her. And I was like, damn, that just feels like it, it feels like his kind of mission to try to help kids that were abused is so similar to what he went through growing up. And it's like this impossible yeah. uh, kind of, you know, goal that he has and uh, tragic and I, like self-destructive. I, yeah, it was really, I, I just felt like it was really a dark moment. Um, and yeah, anyway, so that, that moment made me cry as well as mm-hmm. the, um, the identifying clothing, but ultimately like my main, just like really straightforward extra credit was, which I, I've talked about before the theme of like 
rationalizing violence. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just a really interesting uh, idea to incorporate in a thriller that has these like be, you know, uh, familiar, familiar like aspects that we're used to. And so I, I, I really like that. And I also like that it's like tied to, you know, larger institutions like religion. Yeah, no, that's great. I, um, I was going to go somewhere similar. I, was, I don't know. This was tough because I feel like we share similar feelings about this movie and the ways that we like it. Obviously, I'm being more pretentious about it when it comes to the post 9-11 stuff. I just find that, again, I think that's pretty subversive. Well, it's like um, once you hear I, Denise say that that is his, you a rarely, goal of his. Yeah, you rarely hear like, directors say things yeah, like that. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. You like rarely, especially like uh, directors at that level, mm-hmm. they don't want to like, give away necessarily their secrets. Right, Of exactly. their intentions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just want to shout out, this is not my extra credit, but I want to shout out the technicals of this movie. I already said like the Johansson score is incredible. I mean, it is like a haunting, yeah, yeah. uh, like intimidating towering like score and it, it, it builds to the atmosphere so well. And obviously like Deacons, we haven't said his name enough, but the kind of like cold, we really haven't. Yeah. yeah he, like <laughs> He's so good yeah. like the, the the cold precision in which he shoots a frame and the way he shoots behind glass or uh, uh windows in this movie not glass sorry but windows and the way you see characters in the frame and claustrophobic moments but then mm-hmm. you see them behind some kind of window that is like full of rain is <laughs> just really i don't know it's like an assertive aesthetic um and there's like this kind of like foreboding sense of dread that's like constantly hitting the screen and i, I don't know yeah, there's something like suffocating about his cinematography that I just don't. I I want so much more of in my movies, and I guess I just want more Deacons. Yeah. I felt it in Matt Reeves' The Batman last year, uh, but again, that's just kind of like a, a a Fincher a Fincher homage. But I don't think Deacons was doing like a Fincher homage in here. It does feel like his own. It does feel like you're inevitably going to this dark place with the cinematography, and I. I I thought it really accelerated the themes of the movie and and really made this misery filled like religious cinematography slash score really really effective in yeah, moments where the, totally where the movie was uh, where the movie was like getting more tense yeah um so I wanted to shout out those elements of the film the technicals are just great my extra credit again I've said it a lot but the post nine eleven North American aggression critique is just really smart to me I think the idea of like what would you do to avenge the American lives lost that day is the question that a lot of creatives Gen Xers are trying to ask in this, the heart of their movies, but are afraid to like explicitly go through that mm-hmm. in press and to hear Denis, like you were just saying, like actually say it just, I just, uh, it feels validating as an audience member and not condescending. And I like feeling like I'm a part of a conversation, mm-hmm. uh, usually in my movies. And so I like that Denis is allowing that with this, like, you know, asking this terrible question with almost useless results that is supposed to be symbolic of American military efforts. And I just thought that was like so mm. smart through Dover's character and using him as like a contradiction of values and then using Loki to kind of rectify the metaphor and like real time mistakes of Dover. Um, and just kind of using Loki also as like a checks and balances to the irrationality of Dover and, mm. uh, even though both the characters are kind of still lost. And and ultimately Loki's not able to like be a check and balance, even though that's what the institution is supposed to represent. Yeah. Yeah. He kind of takes the law in his own hands in certain moments and lets it go too far and abuses his power, which is what happens to Bob Taylor. Who's like a victim multiple times in this movie. Um, I just think that like, 
audience is not analyzing prisoners deeper than Holly Jones being the kidnapper has, I think, led to more generic content trying to mimic this allegory story mm. and uh, this allegorical story in things like television, like what you're talking about. So I just want to give extra credit to prisoners, the whole team who made this movie for taking the leap to really kind of like go on this journey physically, metaphorically, like coming out of an underworld. I, I love that as a through line of Villeneuve's films, just seeing how people are able to come out of like a deep, dark place. And maybe it's possible to do that. It does make me a little bit skeptical of like where he's going to go in future <laughs> movies. But I, I do love that he's obsessed with that idea. I also love that he's obsessed with making challenging art in the guise of like a basic mystery. And I think this whole team was like on the same page of trying to really push the boundaries of what is like, you know, the norms and conventional blockbusters. So mm, yeah, this is one of my favorite movies of all time. Thank you, Kelsey for, I know you, <laughs> I know you like this movie, but thank you for letting me like kind of fanboy do about you think, the movie. Do you think that people will be upset that we didn't talk about the very end? Also great cinematography. You mean, the, <laughs> you mean like Jake driving and driving Anna to the hospital? Oh no, that was a great scene. Um, but I just mean like the whistle at the end, like, um, it, it was so weird. I, I mean, it's just inception. It's, well, yeah, it's but the, it was so weird. Cause I like saw, I, I just like, cause we watched a while back cause we planned to do this episode and it got pushed off a little bit because of our schedules. But, um, I was like, okay, let me just watch like a quick, like summary prisoners YouTube video just to like get the scenes in my head, right. Sure. Of the breakdown. Um, so I have it chronologically and there were so many like prisoner ending explained episodes. And I, and I was like, why? Like, is it not clear at the end <laughs> that Hugh Jackman's in the hole, like blowing the whistle and, and then Jake doesn't know if he hears it and then he hears it and he's going to get him. I was like, why are there so many ending explained? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Maybe. There, I mean, after the first time I watched this in 2013, I definitely was like, wait, so how did he find a whistle down there? Did Anna eventually oh, find the whistle with joy? I see. I had some questions there. I don't, I hope people aren't asking like, does Loki decide to save him or not? I was like, that. No, seems no, it obvious. was literally just that like Hugh Jackman's in hole. Loki will, will notices whistle. Oh, those are what the explanation videos sound yeah. like. And I was like, man, we should what? have been podcasting back then. We would have done numbers. Uh, I mean, we've done, we've done an explained on this show before we've done like Nope explained. Or, yeah. But I mean, but I, think I guess that's a lot more complicated. Nope is, yeah, yeah. I yeah. think movies that call for like, when we're Barbarian. saying explained, obviously we're just trying to like get searchable terms in order to like give our, our take of but, like, what okay, this but you mean the actual is content, but is, like, I mean, so like it's straightforward. so straightforward. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just like, why is this being explained? I understand. I would They're not doing three hour deep dives on Babylon. Well, I would understand if it were more so like, here's how Holly Jones is the killer. Or so, you know what I mean? If there was confusion yeah. around that and like her role. Um, but I was like, yeah, I, get it <laughs> yeah i don't know i mean the movie is straightforward i don't think the mystery yeah. is the interesting part i think it's what has to be hidden in the subtext which yeah. is interesting because we still live in a restrictive era where things are still difficult to talk about like american hegemonic supremacy of our military like, and it's just, with that i uh, prisoners. i'll stop there <laughs> um i do uh i do want to say thank you everyone for listening i know you expected a three-hour prisoners podcast but i promise kelsey two hours. We weren't going to go past <laughs> two hours. So I hope you enjoyed the extra credits of prisoners. Don't forget to answer our poll in Spotify about what your favorite thriller is. And also you can let us know in the questions and answers, any thrillers that we missed, any psychological mysteries, thrillers that we missed. Let us know some of your favorite movies. Again, we'll add them to the watch list. Follow us on social media, check the description, rate us on Apple and Spotify. Leave us a review if you like what you hear. And we'll be back soon with what? What are we going back soon with? Martin um, Scorsese movie draft? 
Possibly? I think we have something before that. Do we? Okay. Yeah, but I don't want to. Is I don't it Scorsese related? No. Oh, it's something else. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll but just I don't, wait on I don't that. want to commit to that just in case. At the very but least, the people very will least, see Scorsese episodes in the next week or so. Yeah, we will be having a Scorsese draft. Should we? Uh, should we uh, tell them the guests? Do we want to announce the guest right now? I mean, it's the end of the pod, so let's just. We've had guests have been this like far. have issues outside of the podcasting and bail before. I, we'll just we'll let them know. We're having the letterbox show on yeah so or the martin scorsese draft and then if something happens a conflict happens then you'll just be getting us yeah <laughs> which will be a ton of fun either way yeah. but yeah the letterbox show is coming on i'll save who the two guests are going to be because they have four main hosts over on that yeah. podcast and they're all great uh we picked two of our favorite hosts from that show and they luckily were like yeah let's do it and yeah. they love scorsese so it's I'm gonna interested be a- too because like trey and i have different takes on the Scorsese filmography also. We do. We're trying to like not talk about it and trying to like prep ourselves for the live conversation. You know, I just feel like I have, I have a sense, obviously. You don't know me. You don't know me. We both love like two or three of the movies. Okay. We'll get, we'll get to it. Bye everyone. Uh, Don't forget to check Patreon too in the description. Bye. This has been Trey. And this is Kelsey. Peace.